I'm Kyle. And I'm Trevor. And welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. If you're not familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein myself and Kyle take turns introducing each other to films, and uh, in this way we catch up on our cinema. Uh, So it is the month of July, and we are doing an event here on the show that we've been calling Catching Up on Black and White. And uh, I gave uh, Mr. Kyle the helm in terms of selecting all the content this month, being as I had essentially five weeks in a row of Peter Weller <laughs> movies, so I figured, you know, hmm, I owe him a little something. Yeah. Uh, so, Kyle, uh, what did you have? Uh, what did you have us review this week? Uh, this week, I chose Cape Fear from 1962, directed by J. Lee Thompson, um, who was a prolific director. However, this is the only film of his I think I've seen. Um, did he do Twelve Angry Men, or is that Lumet? I, I think that was Sidney Lumet. Okay. Um, however, that film does have. Uh, some cast members, or at least a cast oh, member. I'm thinking um, of uh, Martin Balsam. Is Martin Balsam in Twelve Angry Men? Correct. There we go. That's what I'm mixing mixing up. Yeah, this is um, this is of course the original Cape Fear based off of the ex- Executioners or something like that. Uh, some book. Um, yeah, <laughs> you got book. it. <laughs> uh, and uh, I wanted to watch this because uh, it's in black and white, um, and this is also part of kind of catching up on Robert Mitchum for me. Um, I'm not a huge Gregory Peck guy. I've seen a couple of Gregory Peck movies. He's fine. Tall, dark, and handsome. I get it. But um, we were talking about him. Like Robert Mitchum had a, he had a big moment, and we were not alive for any of it. And uh, I thought this would be a film to catch up on. And also, you and I uh, are very—I at least I am very fond of the Scorsese remake with Robert De Niro, Nick Nolte, and Jessica Lange. Yeah, um, which I've seen a dozen times, and it's an excellent film. Um, Robert De Niro's awesome as Max Cady, so I thought this would be a good, this would be a chance to check this one out. And I think I ended on a high note. I think uh, this might be the best film of the month, uh, besides Captain Blood. I mean, it's it's a toss up between the two. Captain Blood's just fucking fun. It's uh, great. This this one's more cerebral, a lot more measured in how it's presented, but. Um, it's it's also quite good um and it needs to be said this director has a very eclectic filmography mm. um he's not one that's super well known to me however upon closer inspection these appear to be loafers i mean um he did uh the guns of navarone which i actually haven't seen but i know it's a big one um that's that's a very popular film among you know world war ii movie fans and whatnot um i have seen force 10 from navarone uh, with Harrison Ford and Robert Shaw. Oh. Uh, this is the sequel to it. Um, I think it's regarded as the lesser of the two, but that's neither here nor there. But what's really funny about this guy's filmography is that um, despite this movie being like kind of a classic in some regards, it's also kind of schlocky, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. but not to the extent that it's like trashy. But it's like it has a little bit of like trash to it that makes it more approachable in my eyes. But What's funny is that like he carried that thread going forward, like he he carried on with that, and he went on to do some of the later Planet of the Apes films. Mm. Um, but the the fucking icing on the cake, man, is by the end of his career, he was he was a ward of the Canon Film Group. Like <laughs> he was doing nothing but Canon <laughs> nothing films in canon. the last years of his career, <laughs> um, many of which I have seen. A lot of Charles Bronson, a little bit of Chuck Norris. Uh, he did Death Wish four, so like the man, the man's filmography is a little all over the place, but I kind of like it. Um, so maybe I'll look into him a little bit more. But um, yeah, this movie was was kind of a treat. 
Um, I always knew it by reputation. Um, like you, uh, Robert Mitchum is not somebody that's terribly well known to me. Uh, same with Gregory Peck, to be honest. However, what little I've seen of both of them, really fucking appreciate. Um, my experience with Gregory Peck uh, is a little bit eclectic. Um, I've only seen a couple of his movies. Like, I haven't seen the heavy hitters. Like You've seen, Mockingbird. you haven't seen, my girlfriend and I were just talking about this. I'm like, everyone in America has seen To Kill a Mockingbird and It's a Wonderful Life. Those are like the I two. I haven't seen either of those, guys. Holy shit. <laughs> I got some holes in my, uh, my film background. Um, but I have not seen To Kill a Mockingbird. However, I have seen uh, his version of Moby Dick, mm-hmm. where he plays Captain Ahab. Ooh, that sounds um, like fun. And the big one for me uh, is... Uh, the Boys from Brazil. Oh, I've been wanting to watch that for so long. Uh, I don't know if it's generally regarded as a good film, but it's one that my dad was really excited for me to see when I was young. So he he sat me down and we watched it when I was probably too young to get what was happening. Yeah. But Nazi Gregory Hunters. Peck plays Josef Mengele in it. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> he that plays a novel. goddamn Nazi in it. <laughs> he was like the Nazi. I've actually read a book about Mengele. Yeah, um, he was very, very good in it. Um, wow. But that's certainly him playing against type, as far as Very I understand. Much, yeah. Usually he's, you know, the white knight type character, as he is in this one. Oh, no, he was, I mean, arguably more of a monster. Like, Hitler was a piece of shit, but the guys in his, like, higher-ups, they were absolute monsters, because they're the ones actually carrying this out. They're the ones overseeing yeah, the, this the, personally. The Goebbelses and yeah. the Mengeleses. <laughs> yeah, Mengele was yeah. an absolute monster. Oh, yeah. He, he was found in a lake <laughs> in South America. <laughs> Fuck that, dude. Um, yeah, uh, I want to actually watch The Boys from Brazil. I've been meaning to watch it for a while. It's been a running... It's been a joke on Archer because of uh, Krieger. Uh, you'll... you'll As I get you more seasons of Archer, uh, you'll understand why. It's... A, uh, it's uh, folks at home, it's an annual tradition. Uh, Kyle Kyle is feeding me a slow IV drip of... Uh, <laughs> of Archer. Of Archer seasons. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a wonderful... It's a well-written comedy and you like cartoons so i don't know why you haven't been watching it yourself uh well that being said um yeah this this movie top to bottom is a, is a very well put together piece of media um we have a solid director you have two big big fucking leading men that either one of them can carry a film um, one of the most iconic score. score this is one of the most iconic scores to me at least because i can pick this out of a lineup like no doubt yeah and folks at home kyle has you know made it known on various episodes that the soundtrack is rarely the thing that he's paying attention to most when he's watching a film and yeah i agree with you um this is a bernard herman or herman score uh he's most noted for his collaborations with hitchcock he gave us the psycho theme among other things i believe that Uh, this was one of the reasons why this film was done in black and white allegedly on imdb that the director wanted to do kind of an ode to hitch uh, hitchcock so he did it in black and white that's how he yeah tribute (laughs) i wouldn't be surprised to i mean it yeah the the look of the film i think shooting it in black and white was the correct choice mm-hmm. uh, especially when we get towards the end and we're shooting essentially at night and we're making extensive use of heavy shadows and uh, similar to Bride of Frankenstein we get a lot of Dutch angles uh, mm-hmm. mostly in the third act um, and I, I think it was just the right way to approach this material otherwise it would have come across as I don't know less intense if it mm-hmm. was in Technicolor or some shit um, and not only that I mean it's early 60s uh 
censorship was in full swing. Uh, this film was certainly affected by it. I would imagine displaying some of the violence in this film in black and white probably made it more acceptable to those censorship boards and whatnot. Um, well, this, so this... it was just the right way to approach the material. Um, uh, but one thing I wanted to say about the score was that I think it's funny that uh, Bernard Herrmann, um, Kyle pointed out that he can pick this, this theme out from the lineup. It's, it's truly iconic um, to the extent that Scorsese didn't bother to change the music for for this, the remake. He just used the same score. I was going to say, I'm like, when this started, I'm like, oh my god, it's the exact same score. I, I think they may have had a different composer working on it, but they did they did source the exact same music. It, I have to, you have to respect. I mean, if that was Scorsese's decision, um, not only is he an awesome, um, not only is he, he's an awesome filmmaker, but that's kind of a humble move too. He's like, there's no way that anybody's going to top. Like, you're not going to catch that same tone without that score well Scorsese in particular is a very musical director um, I can't think of a lot of his films without thinking of the music that goes with them Gloria, um, Gloria. fuck yes the Italian yeah. version god damn it yeah that's a such a minor moment in that film and inconsequential somehow, scene in the film yeah it's somehow burned into your memory mm-hmm. but yeah all of his films I feel like he he has music playing in his head while he's editing them or shooting them even um and i mean like raging bull was a very good example where there's a lot of use of classical arias and whatnot that apparently he just grew up around a library of that kind of music and he just kind of knew like oh yeah that's going to fit for the opening of this film and suddenly it becomes this iconic moment in film history but um, i still haven't seen raging bull similar to tarantino uh who made use of ennio morricone's music for uh, the hateful eight Mm. Um, Scorsese actually did the same thing with Bernard Herrmann for Taxi Driver. Um, he he made use of some of Bernard Herrmann's music posthumously. Um, it's kind of interesting. That's probably my uh, least favorite Scorsese film that I've seen. Taxi Driver is it's a mean, ugly film. Uh, mm-hmm. It's very hard to. I think you have to be in a bad place or something <laughs> to really to really <laughs> want really to put do. it on. Uh, I mean, me and my friends used to watch the the shootout at the end because that's what. That's the kind of shit that we watched on DVD yeah. Yeah, when we were teenagers. Um, but the rest of the film, chapter skip. Like, you know, you're not, you're not going to watch that film with your friends. <laughs> like, like, no. Fuck no. But I do think it's a very good film, but it's hard for me to find a reason to come back to it is the problem. Um, but one other thing I wanted to say about the score is that for me personally... Um, a big reason why the music for this film is burned into my memory is uh, its use on The Simpsons. Oh, uh, really? So there's a character, Sideshow Bob, who his whole character arc is that... It's uh, Kelsey Grammer, by the way, mm. uh, does the voice. I, like I, um, I I mean, he's been on the show countless times. It, you learn a lot of things through osmosis, whether you want to or not, and Simpsons facts are one of those things. But um, Sideshow Bob has this uh, episode that's... Uh, it's basically Cape Fear with a sideshow Bob trying to kill Bart, and it even ends on a boat um, at the end. And they, they use the Cape Fear theme throughout the episode. And it's become associated with the character because he's made several re- repeat appearances on the show. Um, so for me as a kid, well before I ever saw any version of the Cape Fear film, uh, I was well aware of that music. Um, so it's it, it's just a part of... like mainstream culture i guess or like simpsons culture from a certain point in time before we jump into it i sent you that that clip of um 
I had to send it of uh, Nutty Professor 2 where Buddy Love ends up, um, he does exactly what Robert De Niro does in Cape Fear. Uh, he's sitting in front of Janet Jackson and, um, and uh, Sherman the Clump. And he's Sherman smoking, the Clump. Sherman the Clump. <laughs> and uh, he's smoking a giant cigar and laughing his ass off, which is where uh, De Niro comes in in the remake. But he's watching. He's I like his. Uh, That's right, Robert, suck it in. Ah! <laughs> Eddie Murphy has one of the. He's two. Is like he's got his actual laugh, and then his buddy love obnoxious laugh is fucking hilarious. Um, uh. Buddy Love is one of the most frustrating characters in film history. He really is. As a villain, fucking works. It works. <laughs> you hate him. <laughs> he's, yeah. he's better than any Marvel villain we've ever had. You actually hate him. But, yeah. Oh, I um, mean, yeah. I think Max Cady is one of uh, cinema's greatest uh, cinema's greatest villains. Um, yeah, this has got uh, Gregory Peck playing Sam Bowden. Uh, Trevor's going to be doing his Gregory Peck imp- yeah, Gregory. and Trevor as Sam Bowden yeah. and Kyle as Max Cady <laughs> Robert Mitchum in this movie um, yeah as Max Cady and then the heavy hitters are like Martin Balsam as the chief and Telly Savalas uh, yeah. who, looks, who loves you baby <laughs> who, who looks like um, uh, uh, Tom Hardy as Capone a little bit. I think it's more Tom Hardy's trying to look like Capone, whereas Telly Savalas just looks yeah, like Capone. Looks like, yeah. <laughs> Telly uh, Savalas is great. I love yeah. him. Yeah, I, I really, was so happy to see him. He's got such presence in here. I'm like, he looks... Uh, who's it? Baker? Uh, what is the... Jodon Baker plays this P.I. in the uh, in the remake. That's right. Buford Pusser <laughs> as Charlie. I like Jodon Baker in that movie. Jodon jo Baker's a He's a gem. Like all of his appearances. By the way, he has had multiple appearances in James Bond films as multiple characters. That's an achievement, man. <laughs> like not many people can make that claim. That's fucking awesome. He's played both a villain and a good guy in like three different James Bond films. That's impressive. Um, but yeah, Telly Savalas is great in this as Charlie. Um, I wish he had more to do just because I was always happy to see him on screen. And every time we bring him up, which is not that often, I feel the need to point out that um, I want to say that they modeled the uh, Superman cartoon from the 90s. I want to say they modeled uh, Lex Luthor after him, but it's uh, voiced by Clancy Brown. I remember Lex Luthor's face. Yeah, I think you're right. It looks like uh, it's Wallace. To me, it, it's Co- it's Kojak. It, yeah. it's Kojak. <laughs> he should have a, a lollipop. <laughs> like Lex um, Luthor with a lollipop. <laughs> before we start like kind of talking about the movie and developing the characters, I wanted to mention that I read on IMDb, and this makes a lot of sense, um, Scorsese apparently had a problem with this script, um, mainly with how the family's portrayed, uh, Gregory Peck in particular. Because um, in this movie, Gregory Peck is just innocent guy who just got like wrong place, wrong time kind of deal, and he just did the right thing, and it's coming back to bite him in the ass for no reason whatsoever. Um, and in the remake, Nick Nolte's kind of like flirting, like I think he's had an affair in the past, and he's kind of flirting with possibly having an affair again. Um, he tries to keep this whole situation away from his family as opposed to Gregory Peck in this film, who's pretty upfront at the beginning of what they're going to do. And and Nick Nolte in the remake kind of teeters on like a moral gray area where in this film, Gregory Peck is actually stumbles upon Katie assaulting a woman and rats on him and then testifies against him. However, in the remake, Nick Nolte as um, Sam, he... Um, basically hid evidence that would have kept uh, Robert De Niro's Max Cady out of prison for at least half of his sentence. Um, 
and he kind of lets his emotions get the best of him, and he screws this guy over. And you as a viewer are kind of like, well, I mean, he did brutally rape a girl, like, so you're kind of on his side, but at the same time, it's not his job to determine what's right and what's wrong. And I, I think that's a really good move. I think that makes for a more interesting, more interesting um, um, story as far as this oh, yeah. particular the, story the is concerned. The character dynamics are way more varied and, and intricate in the, the remake. Mm-hmm. Um, Kyle. What's up? Has Scorsese ever put a stable relationship up on film? Man, that's a great question. I don't think he has. He <laughs> I mean, let's see here. Travis Bickle takes um, what's her face to the porno. Uh, Ray Liotta. I mean, I think the most like the best relationship I've seen out of his movies that weren't really that great was probably Ray Liotta and uh, his uh, wife in Goodfellas. I can't think of her name. I mean, they they Karen. come they they come to an understanding. Where it's like, hey, I do shitty things, but it gives you the life that you want and you need, so be okay with this. And she's like, eh, I guess I'm okay with it until I'm not. What's it so, say? Yeah, maybe that's the closest, but they still have some fucking blow-ups. They do have um, some blow-ups, yeah. I mean, um, I mean sh- Scorsese's always been criticized for not handling women as, as well as other directors do. Um, I don't think it's a weakness on part, his part. I think it's maybe just the lens through which he views life. Like, maybe... Maybe that's what he knew growing up. I he, mean, there's he, a lot of scenes like in the The Godfather when was it Sonny is beating ass in the streets or whatever. Mm-hmm. Pretty sure that came from real life. <laughs> like, yeah, it's like yeah, pretty yeah. sure that was the kind of shit he saw growing up. The, <laughs> I think that he he um, he writes generally strong women, but some of them are pieces of shit. Like in in the script, yeah, like. Sharon Stone is a strong female character. However, she's very manipulative and she's not a good person. Um, I would say that Karen's actually a very strong character, and that's how her relationship starts with Ray Liotta in that movie. But then, I think she's probably a better female character. Uh, probably one of the better ones that he's written. Um, a lot of times, his ladies are framed as victims of circumstance. Mm-hmm. It's like they're doing the best with the cards they've been dealt, and unfortunately, they're in a like, hor- like massively masculine world where it's like there's no room for you here so make the best of it and, and it, what... it comes across as ugly but i don't think it's meant to like demonize anyone it's just trying to show that it's like this is how things are sometimes and, and it's 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 hard for everybody and that's what he's a filmmaker wants to explore that's what he that's what a lot of his movies i mean at least his heavy hitters are about masculinity and unfortunately Women fall prey to that. Like they're they're not always going to be the best kind of people in those circumstances. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, in that kind of environment, like succeeding, sometimes just involves takes keeping a different head down. Yeah, I was gonna say <laughs> it, keeping your head down or being a, of a certain mentality. Yeah, exactly. But um, um, we, should we should probably, probably talk about in. the movie at hand. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Scorsese makes the best films, but this one's pretty good in its own right. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to walk us through this one because um, I'm like really well versed in this story. Like, I really know like the like point a point b point c like where it's gonna go um but it, and it jumps in in, pretty... inevitably we're we're gonna be you know bouncing back and forth probably to the remake just to it's inevitable make 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 references to things that maybe were done better or just done differently it's um, sorry being a sandwich folks it's almost gonna be like a versus like kind of comparing and contrasting the two well uh, I th- you said before we started recording it's actually very hard once you've seen one to 
not think of the other. Mm-hmm. Um, they're both very good films in their own right. I do. Th- I think. I think I have a stronger allegiance towards the remake just because it's a more visceral experience, and I do like. Uh, as much as I enjoy Gregory Peck as a screen presence, I think this particular character was 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 better cast as Nick Nolte. You know, it would have been funnier was uh, Jimmy Stewart. Oh, <laughs> his cartoonish ass! <laughs> oh, this is, this is this is terrible, Max. I can't even I can't even believe you'd be thinking about something like that. Oh, oh. just oh, him God, destroy- Max. Oh God, Max! No, <laughs> no, no, Max. So much more fun. <laughs> it's like fucking Pee Wee Herman and fucking Javier Pee Wee Herman and Anton Chigurh in two movies. Like, oh, like. I'm going to get you. <laughs> uh, so, Kyle, um, did you want me to kick things off, or did you want to carry yeah, jump, the torch for this jump, one? Jump into the jump. Uh, get us going here, and then I'll uh, I'll take over. Okay. So, uh, Cape Fear, 1962, directed by J. Lee Thompson. Um, right out the gate, as soon as the film starts up, the first thing we get is the Bernard Herrmann score, the the iconic theme music, the booming. Uh, brass and whatnot. The bum, 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 bum. It's like immediately. Yeah, it's a beautiful way to start a film. It sets the tone immediately. Immediately. And, uh, we open on shart- shots of a shorts <laughs> of a of a park, and uh, we get like full screen titles, like it singular titles, like slides for each actor. So it's just Gregory. Back at Robert Mitchum, one at a time because they're both so big, and I think Polly Bergen even gets her own. Uh, she plays uh, Gregory Peck's wife, Peggy, Peggy Bowden. And she's um, not much. She's not as much of a character as Jessica Lange is in that other film. Like it's very much a family unit in the remake. This they're kind of tur- like not really a part of the film as much. I feel like that's where the censorship boards and the just the culture of the day kind of entered into the conversation, where it's like. Mm. I don't. I don't, I don't want to. I don't want the folks to go home feeling like their marriage is ruined or something. Because like by the end of the remake, it, it's kind of up in the air. Like they went through. They went to hell and back. Um, it's very much up in the air if that's that that relationship is going to survive. Um, but yeah, uh, we get Robert Mitchum, uh, like a tracking shot of him walking through the park, and he's wearing his essentially his uniform throughout this film. Uh, he has. A particular kind of hat i don't know if it's a panama hat but it's a white hat with like a black band around it and he's wearing mostly white um and he walks through the park as all the credits play out because we're it's an older film that's what we do front credits i kind of miss those um and he approaches a courthouse and uh we get a we get a character moment here again he hasn't said a fucking thing we don't even know who he is at this point but he bumps an old woman in a stairwell walking into the courthouse and he like knock. She has a stack of books in her arms, and it knocks the book off, and it falls. And he just kind of like looks at her, and just keeps walking. It's like well, that's that's a motherfucker right there. He's, he's, <laughs> shit. he's not polite. Uh, he's very. He's got. <clears throat> he's got a very uh, male gaze, as they would say. Like he's very much checking out asses as girls are walking by, kind of deal. Um, he's he's kind of like a an evil James Bond in some ways. Cause he he has like a cat like way about the way he moves like he he kind of slinks about and he has he gives sideways glances to everybody but unlike James Bond who you know he's telling you what he wants but he's not he's not gonna like take it from you he's gonna he's gonna ask nice like Max is 
he is evil. Like he's pure evil. He's, he's pure. size he's sizing everyone up in and, the, in the most negative of ways. And, and and later when he has a moment at the bar with uh kind of a bar fly hanging out with a friend, he I was wondering, I'm like I asked Steph, I'm like, do you think that Robert Mitchum's handsome? She's like, No, not really. I'm like, What about Gregory Peck? She's like, Absolutely, yeah, he's very Absolutely. handsome. <laughs> and then I was thinking like, what about Robert De Niro? Because Nick Nolte arguably is a very handsome man, especially back then. Not so much now. Uh, <laughs> now he looks more like his character from The Mandalorian. Uh, he, uh, but Robert De Niro, I'm like, what do you think Robert De Niro, do you think he's kind of handsome in that movie? Because he, he's got some game. He managed to get um, Nick Nolte's friend back home, you know? I mean, she was pretty lit up. But I was just like, I wonder if that was, I wasn't sure if that was something they were kind of going for. Because arguably I'd say, De Niro at that time, good looking dude. Like, he's really physically fit there. And I was wondering if that was part of this character. Like, he's kind of good-looking and, like, attractive. And she's like, it's more of his confidence. Like, he's got a, uh, he's just very confident and not so much good-looking. I, I agree with your gal. Um, he, I think he is meant to be framed as attractive, but not, like, aesthetically pleasing. I mean, it's, that, more, it's more just he's magnetic. Space, um, not so much. He's got a good build. Like, he's, he's not a bad-looking dude. For the day, especially. And, yeah. and I mean... The camera loves his face. Like he mm-hmm. hasn't, he has actually has an unusual construction of, for his face. Very like much. His, his eyes are very widely spaced apart. He has almost like a triangular face. Like a, he doesn't have much of a jaw, but mm. he's got a big old cranium. Yeah. <laughs> uh, good for head button. But um, yeah, he uh, bumps that lady in the stairwell. And by the way, he is smoking a cigar throughout most of this movie, including in this courthouse coming up the stairs. I don't know if that was okay. In the 60s, probably, but <laughs> but for me in 2020 watching that, it seems like kind of a, a D-bag move, um, but uh, he walks into a, co- a court that is in session at, as the music dies down, and uh, he sits down to observe uh, Gregory Peck, uh, Sam Bowden, who is an attorney uh, at work in the courtroom. He's not and, representing uh, Boo Radley. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, Gregory Peck, as Sam Bowden, uh, after the session's concluded, he uh, he walks past Max Cady, uh, Robert Mitchum, and he doesn't really notice him or anything. But Mm-mm. everything about the framing of this suggests that there's some sort of tension or history between these two characters. It's a skillful visual storytelling. It's hard to go into this story oblivious. It's kind of like, especially if you've seen the Scorsese one first, like you know exactly what's going to happen in this film. Well, but, I mean, if if you came into it completely dry, mm-hmm. that music put on footage of a man taking a casual stroll through a park, mm-hmm. he's got something going on. He's got something going on. <laughs> like he's up to something. I'm just like it's harder for me. Like the tone is still there, but it's just yeah, it's the little things that I, I didn't quite notice. I'm like yeah, that that is kind of menacing, isn't it? Like there's 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 trouble here. I'm like I know there's trouble. There's the uh. <laughs> <laughs> the music's telling me how to feel. Goddamn. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, but so yeah. I, we get our first confrontation between the two, Kyle. And uh, you want to walk yeah. us through how that goes down? Um, yeah, he. This is a, a, a menacing way to start a conversation. Uh, as Gregory or Sam, as he's about to drive away, uh, um, Katie, Max, Katie goes in and just grabs his keys out of the ignition and just holds on to him. And uh, I mean, that's that's pretty scary if somebody does that to you. Um, uh, and in terms of aggressive gestures, that's pretty high on the list. <laughs> you invaded my space. You stole my property. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's like I, I feel, I feel entitled to do pretty much anything to you at this point. <laughs> Don't try that shit in an open carry 
in an open carry state, which North Carolina is, by the way. Oh, yeah. Doom, 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 doom. Movie over. <laughs> so the film is called Cape Fear, uh, having to do with where the uh, the, the uh, Bowdens go later in the film. They go to Cape Fear. But uh, I believe this is supposed to take place in North Carolina because we do – this was filmed mostly in Savannah, Georgia, and then some lot in California. Um, but we do have a Cape Fear in North Carolina. So I think that's kind of where it's supposed to happen. I couldn't, I couldn't narrow it down for sure. Um, but it's definitely supposed to take place in the south. Gotcha. Um, yeah, this is where uh, uh, um, Sam doesn't quite know who this person is at first, but uh, Katie, you know, like jogs his memory, like, remember me now a little bit? And he's like, it's kind of nice to see you like this. You're the exact same. Um, and this was a this was a nice little conversation between Nick Nolte and De Niro as well. Um, it didn't happen this fast, though. I was surprised at how quickly this movie gets going. It's just straight into the story. Yeah, uh, it kind of comes right out the gate, like, swinging. But, uh, yeah, uh, Katie refreshes Sam's memory here, and he says, eight years, four months, and 13 days. And he basically says, you know, like, in in that amount of time, uh, I've changed a lot. <laughs> it's like, however, yeah, it does put a smile on my face to see that you're exactly as I pictured you, all that, all those eight years. <laughs> um but yeah, uh, this whole conversation, this whole exchange is done from the driver's side window with Katie basically like poking his head in and leaning on the car. And it, it's a very aggressive way to, to stage a conversation. And uh, this is where like immediately I started to take a little bit of issue with Gregory Peck's portrayal of this character. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I think it's more just a sign of the times that uh, it was it was expected that, you know, the family unit will more than likely remain secure in a in a Hollywood film, anyway. Yeah. I'm sure there were much smaller productions that were, you know, exploring other avenues and whatnot. Like, like years later, you'd have, like, indie filmmakers like John Cassavetes and stuff. Who I was, was about like, to say I Cassavetes. Do, I, <laughs> I do nothing but explore the destruction of the of the familial unit and whatnot. But in, the, in, ni- <laughs> in 1962 and whatnot, I'm pretty sure that, you know, the censorship boards weren't exactly excited about the idea of watching a marriage crumble in a Mm -hmm. Hollywood film that's meant to make money. And uh, Gregory Peck is just too stoic for this role, if you ask me. Um, What I liked about the character's portrayal and the extra dimension added to the Nick Dolte version is is that, yeah, he's kind of a scumbag in his own right. He's done some bad shit. He knows it. He feels guilty about it. But more than that, Nick Nolte has a different skill set in that He's very good at playing like fidgety, pissed off guys. <laughs> like, like, that's, that's his best. That's his best thing. No, he was very well cast for that role. Where he, you know, he has a lot of breakdowns where he gets like irrationally pissed off. He takes things too far. He snaps at his wife. Whereas Gregory Peck is just yeah. kind of uptight and stoic all throughout the film. Well, it makes <laughs> sense for the first part of the film. Where he thinks things are going to be handled just fine, but yeah, throughout the film, there's no like the reality never sets in on him. Like he's like very much going to be in trouble um, when that lawyer's like, hey, "You're going to be disbarred, dude." Like one of these guys that you hired to beat him up caved. Now you're looking. I mean, you're looking at prison basically at this See, point. If- in the Nick Nolte version of the character, if you took the same script and you put Nick Nolte in that role, he'd probably like have a little bit of flip out in the courtroom, yeah. like "motherfucker, I got this handled." Like he just, just snap, a, yeah. yeah, or loosening yeah, he, his tie he, as soon as he gets home, pounding a good yeah. big glass of whiskey real quick. He would he would sweat a little. Yeah, is what it <laughs> he would and sweat a little. <laughs> just or talk through his teeth. <laughs> yeah, you would talk through his teeth. He'd sweat, and I was gonna save this for later, but like the 
the way I've been thinking of phrasing it in my head is that in these like man versus man stories, and I've seen a lot of them, it's like one of my favorite subgenres of film is like a two hour film devoted to just two people hating each other. And then by the time you get to the final act, you get that payoff where it's like, okay, they finally go at it or something. Uh, South Korea, that's like 80% of their output. <laughs> like, most of your shelf right now. <laughs> yeah. But the, the phrase that comes to mind is like in, in this kind of thing, Usually you have a man who wears a suit, in this mm. case Gregory Peck. In that kind of story, there's almost an, an expectation, at least in 2020 anyway, that eventually that suit has to come off. Yeah. And in this film, it never really does. Um, however, in the remake, it certainly does, and then some. Mm. Um, anyway. Well, which... the suit doesn't come off uh, in this film the way you want it to because he's absolutely like he's ready to use his daughter as bait to shoot this guy like he the suit's trying to come off it just the character doesn't let it or like Gregory yeah. Peck just doesn't yeah well yeah he's very clinical about how he goes about it he's he sounds like he's in the courtroom actually and I have to you know you, you yeah you could actually you know skirt around that and say like oh he's a lawyer maybe that maybe this is how he internalizes things maybe this is how he processes things where it's like oh I'll just you know break things down clinically I, I am feeling a lot of emotions. I am distressed, but this is how I'm expressing it. It's by well, like narrowing the focus, I guess. With the Scorsese, Scorsese one, uh, it's kind of classist a little bit, like the the two, because he was uh, Katie in that film was like raised in the hills, like he's just like a country bumpkin. He learned to read in prison, as he said. Like it's it's a little bit different there too. Yeah, and there's a lot more emphasis put on. Um, Nick Nolte's character underestimating him mm-hmm. like, Very much. like just assuming he's a barbarian or something it's like motherfucker I've been studying everything you studied for the past eight fucking years he does a better job of fleshing it out like actually actually getting more of a story um, but yeah they he has the confrontation at the car and he's like can I have my keys back and he's like well why not and um, <laughs> Gregory Preck doesn't really seem phased by this at all and um I've got to say Sam. Sam and Katie. Sam and Katie. Sam and Katie. He goes home, and we get... Um, I think I, I looked it up, and I thought this was the same house in the remake. If not, it looks very similar. But it's a nice southern estate. Very nice, <laughs> nice house. Um, we learn that he has a wife and a daughter. A very young daughter. Uh, I think she was like 15. Yeah, this is... Uh, I'm, I'm sorry to grind things to a halt again, Kyle. Like I really am sorry, but I need to get this out. So this this uh, daughter Nancy Bowden, uh, she's played by actress Lori Martin. As soon as she appeared on screen, I was like, "Is that a little person?" <laughs> because I don't know what what was in the water where she grew up, but her face looks like an adult, and the hairdo doesn't help, and even her proportions. She looks she just looks like a miniature adult. She's actually 15 at the time, and that's yeah, roughly yeah. the age she's supposed to be playing. And I think they, I think they kind of were looking for somebody who, they were looking for somebody who looks more childlike, but isn't quite that young. And I don't think they state her name ex- or her age exactly in the film, but I think she's supposed to be playing pretty young. Um, yeah, I I looked it up because I was curious because just something oh, yeah. about her her look but no she she legitimately was like 14 or 15 and mm-hmm. i thought she did a great job mm-hmm. um, she acted the fuck out of this movie um but i think it does actually amp up like the the drama a bit to have her appear so young mm-hmm. um oh it, it very much does yeah especially in 1962 i'm sure 
Um, and it, without being allowed to use the word rape in the film, that mm. was a censorship thing. They certainly get real close to it. Well, they fucking <laughs> real hor- close. horror movie this shit. It's like it's not what we're saying. It's like what's in your imagination? Because the scene in the in the uh, the little bar with the two of them is fucking brutal. Um, oh yeah. Uh, but yeah, so they meet and then uh, they meet up and they're uh, they're gonna go bowling and uh, <laughs> we uh, we get them you know just like having fun you know. Do, do what people did back in the 60s. I guess they went bowling more often. And, oh, guess who fucking shows up? Yeah, uh, Max Cady's up sitting behind them, and he uh, kind of awkwardly orders a beer. Um, actually, this probably wasn't awkward in 1962. This is probably very normal. Pretty standard. Oh, yeah. Da- he probably he just sits down at a random table. There's a woman bussing said table as he's doing, so he just makes eye contact with her, pauses, and says, Beer. <laughs> and she and she's like, okay, <laughs> no pleasantries or anything, just beer. <laughs> Trevor, I've worked in the service industry for a long time. There are assholes. Mm. Ah, well, more I mean, so Max probably Katie's, back then. <laughs> Max Katie, Lord of the assholes. <laughs> oh, seriously. Well, no, uh, he, if you look up douchebag in the dictionary, it is Max Katie. He is cinema's greatest douchebag. <laughs> yeah, he's, he, I would I would put him in that category. But Top five. Uh, he ordered, he orders his beer, and uh, Gregory Peck, hats off to that guy. He uh, he's bowls a legitimate strike, mm-hmm. like on camera. I don't know oh. how many takes that took, but he fucking did it. <laughs> oh, well, this is like your golf game back then. Like, like you can just you should be able to shoot a sixty nine. Like, you better be able to bowl a turkey, dude. Like, you better hit three <laughs> strikes, man. <laughs> but yeah, I was kind of shocked. Like, it's all in one take, so it's like he couldn't fake that. He actually bowled that strike. That's pretty fucking cool. But, um. We see that Katie is watching from behind them, and he is kind of laser-focused on Peggy. Or, no, not Nancy, uh, the daughter, uh, which is a little bit distressing. And uh, meanwhile, the waitress, we get a we get another uh, notch on his asshole belt. Uh, the waitress comes back with the beer, and uh, he noticed she, she, she has a wedding ring. And he notes it, and he's like, does that ring mean anything? And she's like, yeah, it means a whole lot. And he's like, well, how about this? $20. <laughs> it's like, I don't know how much $20 was in 1962, uh, like inflation and whatnot, but uh, that's not enough, Max. <laughs> like, um, but, yeah, it's just we're strongly just kind of trying to hint to the audience that's like, he's a dick. He's a dick. Yeah. Also, at the car, he points out a woman's ass Mm -hmm. and uh, also doesn't explicitly threaten uh, the counselor sam but he says i'll be seeing you and your family give my love to the family and whatnot Mm -hmm. so it's like okay um but sam notices katie above after he walks back from his strike and uh, his next his next role is a gutter ball because he's off his game Um, i'm sure he's very upset about that uh and then uh, we get an ex- another exchange between the two of them where Katie approaches him and, like, taps him on the shoulder before he leaves. And it's a, I don't know, it's, it's like, wow, you're, you're getting real close already. Like, he hasn't done anything yet, but he's definitely poking the bear. Um, but, yeah, we fade out from the bowling alley, and uh, Sam immediately calls the po- chief of police, uh, who is played by Martin Balsam, uh, who is, holy shit, like maybe the most veteran actor that ever acted uh, he's mm-hmm. been in everything everything name it he's been in it pretty much i mean again funny enough he actually followed this director into working for the canon group <laughs> he is in death wish 3 um, but uh this guy uh he was one of the titular 12 angry men 
um, and he's been in everything in between. So if you if you can name something, he was in it. Uh, he was also in Psycho as the uh, the PI that goes to the house and falls ah, down the stairs. Gotcha. Yeah, uh, and he plays the chief of police in this, Mark Dutton. And uh, Sam gets on the line with him, and uh, we we have a we have a late night meetup, and this is again a sign of the times because mm-hmm. he's like, yeah, Sam, I can meet you. Come on over. And then we fade to a garage with two grown men talking in the evening, and Gregory Peck is dressed in his suit <laughs> because I go over for casual beers in a man's garage wearing a full suit. <laughs> now, Trevor, I don't know if you know this because you're not a drinker, but did you notice how he was opening the cans of Budweiser here? Have at it, Kyle. This uh, uh, r- r- brings me back to one of my favorite scenes in Mad Men, and also uh, the description of which got me to watch Mad Men. Um, they are using... Now, when someone's like, use one of those can openers. You're like, what can openers? So they're opening it like how you would open uh, the big quarts of uh, Hawaiian Punch. Like, they actually have to jab a hole into the metal top. That's how <laughs> beers were before pull tabs, and what we have now, just regular tabs. But yeah, they have to pop it one side and then pop the other so it aerates so you can actually get a good flow of beer. Did you catch that? I did not. So in Mad Men, uh, Don has to build a dollhouse for his daughter's uh, birthday. So instead of drinking liquor, as he usually drinks, he crushes, I think, on screen he crushes about six beers while making this thing. And then he starts drinking liquor at the party. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's it's a nice little thing because he just keeps going to the garage. <laughs> Uh, I, thank you for using the Hawaiian punch can as an example because that, that painted the picture. For that actually gotcha, there you go. secured it in my mind. I get it now. <laughs> the cop, uh, he's actually like, he, he kind of tells him the, uh, a little bit about him. He's like, yeah, I testified. He, we give him the story. He's like, yeah, I saw Katie, I think, either attempting rape or assaulting a woman. And uh, he stopped it. And once he was arrested, um, uh, Sam testified against him in court. And he went to prison for eight years. How long was it again? It's like uh, something four months you had and it. thirteen days. I thought you had it on the top of your head no, there. Sorry. I, I think it was four months and thirteen days. But oh. uh, it needs to be said this was actually something that had to be changed for the film. Apparently, in the novel, uh, the word rape, of course, was used in the novel. Um, but more than that, uh, both characters were in the military, um, and it was un- it was decided that. Uh, having katie be a product of the u.s military didn't look good wasn't a good look for the u.s military so they said "Mm, maybe nix that part um but kind of went down similarly uh just major difference was that uh, they nixed the military background for both characters um but yeah uh, he appeared in court as witness against katie max katie and uh max katie and uh, the chief of police notes that uh, he's, he's kind of like running through a list of options. It's like, mm-hmm. well, I, I get why you're scared of this guy, Sam. Uh, maybe I can help you out. So this is like small town justice kind of shit. Where it's like, oh, you have the chief of police on, on the speed dial, oh, which we didn't have at the time. But um, you, you regularly have beers with the chief of police. So he's, he's going to do you a solid here. So he's like, hmm, you know, ex-cons have to register anytime they arrive in a new town once they've mm-hmm. been released from confinement so he's like hmm maybe he forgot to file his paperwork because if he did that then we can kick him out and nope he gets on the line turns out katie was on the ball he did all that he's like hmm, maybe uh maybe he's 
destitute. Maybe he just got out of prison. He probably doesn't have any money. Like maybe he doesn't actually have a home right now. Maybe he's homeless. Maybe we can maybe we can push him out of town for vagrancy. Um, and that they put that on hold for now. Um, but they we cut to a bar mm-hmm. in a basement and uh, peep the Confederate flag. By the way, <laughs> I didn't see that. So yeah, we're in North Carolina. It's uh, it's very loud and proud in the back of the <laughs> in the back of the set. I um, saw one today on my way home. I'm sure you did, Kyle. Two actually, uh, two on the same truck. Oof! Wow. That's a big thing here. People like to put their uh, their affiliations on with big flags on the back of their truck. It's a big deal. Trump, Biden, Confederate flags. Those are the three that you're going to see. And the Blue Lives Matter flag. That's also a big one. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so Katie, uh, he continues his. Uh, Sleaze, sleaze bag routine of uh, bag, yeah. eyeing a woman from across the bar who, by the way, is laughing and like pawing at a, a dude next to her who's mm-hmm. obviously buying her drinks and stuff. But Katie doesn't care. He's <laughs> like, he's like laser focused on what he wants, and uh, you can tell from the way she's looking back at him that she's into it. <laughs> yeah, he's got a real we fucking or I'm fucking kind of vibe. Yeah, exactly. Um, unfortunately, he gets well. Fortunately, I guess. Uh, he yeah. gets, yeah. <laughs> Before you get going here too far, Trevor, I had my face melted while watching this scene. Now, there's a movie uh, with Will Ferrell called Semi-Pro, which is pretty funny, but he's doing a plug for a beer called Bush Bavarian. Now, if you notice that uh, Max is sitting at the bar drinking a beer, and I notice it's a Bush beer, and it's also that same kind of can, and I looked, and it said Bush Bavarian. I thought that that was a fake beer that he was just they were just making up a beer in that movie. Bush Bavarian Bavarian was a real beer. Uh, and I had my mind blown. And I found pictures of it too. I'm like, "Holy shit, that was a real beer. Bush Bavarian." See, you need to make a spin-off podcast, Kyle, where you just talk about drinking and films <laughs> and you smoking. Need a, you need a cookie podcast and you need a beer podcast <laughs> just talking about drinking on film. I get catching up on indulging, catching up on indulging, basically. <laughs> well, I mean, they have that uh, uh, Wikipedia for guns on film. You could have a Wikipedia for drinks on film. Could do that. Think billion dollar idea. But uh, anyway, the the cops they come down the stairs uh, and they're looking for Katie and they grab him and uh, he he jerks away from them pretty violently. He doesn't like being pawed at, as he phrases it. Um, and in a cool guy move uh as they're escorting him out he's like give me one sec and he steps to that woman that he was eyeing and he says i'm gonna give you just one hour to get rid of your friends <laughs> it's like damn uh confidence like like your gal had said and uh yeah she's very much into it uh so i believe this is when they take him into the back of the police station correct mm-hmm. yeah yeah uh so this scene was uh much more visual and much more intense in the uh, Scorsese version. This is where yeah. you get the reveal of the tattoos and whatnot, and the and Robert De Niro being a fucking living weapon. Yeah, like, he, he was in shape. He was <laughs> the most cut I've ever seen him. He had the bulging abs. He didn't have swimmer abs. He had bulging NFL abs. Yeah, this was uh, first half of Raging Bull De Niro. Um, he mm. was in shape in that <laughs> second time. half. And, and not so much second half. <laughs> Even I know he gets super fat in that movie. Yeah, but um, no, he intentionally made himself a physical specimen because, again, he's been in prison for eight years, and not only that, he's supposed to be this vicious, animalistic person. So it it stands to reason that it's in the best interest of your performance if you appear dangerous. Um, and also, 
fun fact about both of these films, both interpretations. Um, the Sam Bowden character is played by people who are taller um, than the person who plays Max Cady in both films. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another layer of uh, compensation that's required where it's like, Nick Nolte's taller than Robert De Niro. How do we make him look like a, how, how do we make it appear that Nick Nolte is no match for this guy? It's like, well, have him slouch a little bit, have him sweat profusely. Okay. Nick's got that on lock, but <laughs> it's yeah. like on top of that, let's maybe have De Niro show up in shape. Oh yeah. De Niro. Uh, you didn't even have to. De Niro's just menacing as he is. You don't even realize how tall he, like how, how much not, uh, how much shorter he is. I mean, there's a reason his eyes are like 33% of that poster. It's mm-hmm. because they're he's menacing. You know, yeah, no, always, th- those eyes are a useful tool for an actor. I always took note of Robert De Niro's underwear during that strip search. Did you ever notice that? It's hard I can't not remember it. Oh, really? So he's wearing um, so like leopard print or something. <laughs> it's it's along it's that kind of style. It's not a man thong, but it's like the the briefs that were like uh, like satiny kind of thing. It's just uh, it was an interesting pair of underwear for somebody like that. You know what I mean? So I always thought. And this is me, like, this is stretching, I know, but this is actually what I legitimately thought the first time I saw the movie. I always thought he looked like um, the lead singer of ACDC <laughs> because he's wearing that hat and he has the long hair and he's wearing, like, bowling shirts throughout the whole movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I always thought that. Mm. Uh, I remember he's having a conversation with Nick Nolte in his convertible and he's got a bottle of water. And I, as a kid, I'm like, he's just, like, driving around with a bottle of water? I'm like... Because it wasn't a thing. Like, we didn't drive around with a bottle of water. You had a Coke or a Mountain Dew or something. I don't know. It was just a, it was a weird thing. But, yeah, they, uh, they're they doing the strip search with him. Um, and apparently he, he, he mentions that he's well-versed in law now. Like, he's like, well, I have my rights. And I'd like to actually like to call my physician. And this doesn't really come. It's much more prominent in the Scorsese film, like, how much that he actually knows now. Um, in the film, it's just kind of portrayed like his behavior. Like in the actual Scorsese one, they he talks about it more. This is just how his behavior is. Yeah, the, everything in the Scorsese version is dialed up more. Um, the the biblical stuff started to irritate me towards the end of the Scorsese one, where he starts quoting scripture and like doing like Episcopalian like blah, 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 like like yelling from the fucking mountain. Episcopalian is a type of Catholic. Um, oh, Pentecostal. Sorry. <laughs> Pentecost, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, I kind of um, like that. I like that trait in that character. I think that's why I liked his performance. It's because there's something kind of menacing about that. Somebody, because I, I grew up in a religious household, and I know how people who are religiously repressed like that can, how they can blossom into really shitty people. Well, I think, I think what they're trying to stress in that interpretation is that um, not only... I mean, we, we're given the information that Nick Nolte did wrong. Like, from if you go by the book, like the U.S. law, yeah, he did not do his duty as, as a lawyer. Um, so if you factor in, like, the religious aspect of things, it's like not only do you have a man who hates you and is mad at you and wants to ruin your life, he feels justified, not only by his own thought processes, but a higher power, mm-hmm. and it gives him it gives him more strength. It gives him more ammunition against you. So I get it. It's just it. The whole third act of that movie just bugs me. <laughs> it's understandable. I still think it top to bottom, it's great. Um, that fire effect, man, it's not the best. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, they they uh, strip search him, uh, strip search him, and uh, he mentions here that uh, he has a legal right to be examined by a doctor of his choosing if 
if they're trying to charge him with something regarding like in public intoxication or something. Um, and the chief uh, roots through his wallet very casually, by the way, and uh, he's he actually verbalizes it's like, well, maybe we can get you out of town for vagrancy. <laughs> like maybe you're poor. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're living in a car somewhere. Um, but as it so happens, he has paperwork awarding him like fifty four hundred dollars or something. So no, nope, can't do that. Um, and Katie mentions that, oh, y'all are on first name basis, huh? <laughs> I feel like uh, I feel like it's a two against one affair here. That's not exactly fair. And uh, Katie threatens that he's not going to be leaving town anytime soon. And Sam, in response, basically tells him, like, stay off my fucking property, day or night. Um, so we fade to a shot of the uh, Bowden estate. And we see some bushes, and there is a dark bark- a dog barking its head off. Um, it's on the soundtrack. We just hear... <laughs> And uh, meanwhile, Sam is uh, getting a call from the police chief, as it so happens. Uh, that paperwork referring to the money is all legit, so they can't get him for vagrancy. Damn. Uh, and that dog is still going nuts, but eventually it kind of, like, stops. Yeah. It lets out a little yip. And uh, Sam's wife, uh, Peggy, she discovers that the dog is sick and, like, foaming at the mouth. And it's having a fit of some sort. And we get a scene where the whole family drives into town with the dog in their car. And as it so happens, the vet tells us that the dog is now dead and it was poisoned via strychnine. So not natural causes. Uh, In fact, quite the opposite. Uh, And we get a scene in the living room where Nancy, the daughter, is crying, but uh, very similar to her dad. She's very stoic about it. Like, she's not hysterical. She's just kind of like staring off into the middle distance and it has tears on her face. And uh, finally, Sam comes clean, and uh, he tells the whole family what's going on with Katie and uh, his particular beef with Sam. Um, and the daughter's real upset. Um, mostly, she's upset in the same way that I would expect the audience is intended to be, where she's like, you you know who killed my dog, but we're not going to do anything about it? And Sam tries to stress that's like, this is how the law works. You can't, you can't do anything unless we have proof and unfortunately we don't have that um and this is where he kind of stresses that's like daughter you are you're not to leave this house unless it's via your mother's car (laughs) gregory why are you doing that to her (laughs) (laughs) she doesn't understand she hasn't learned how to Bowl a strike yet. <laughs> She's not some... ready to leave the house. I'm going to do some James Mason because I feel like they would hang out. Um, <laughs> yeah, and that. we get... This sequence is kind of long. Um, and in the uh, in the Scorsese film, um, Jessica Lange gets up out of bed after having like a bad dream and she sees... Uh, Robert De Niro sitting on the property line, like in the middle of the night. Um, she's kind of having like a like a like a bad dream kind of thing. Um, she wakes up and Sam's not there. And then she walks by. Uh, she walks by Nancy's room, and uh, she's not there either. So she's kind of panicking a little bit. Um, and we get a nice little jump scare. Uh, I mean, it wasn't super strong, but at the time it was pretty good. Um, we get. She sees like a figure and standing in the dark with a hat. And she's like, <gasps> flips on the light. It's just you know the hat. And uh, oh, Nancy comes around the corner, and she's just got like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich with milk or something. She's like, what are you doing up? I'm like, oh, I'm just getting a sandwich. She's like, where's your dad? And he's like, oh, he's talking to a cop. And we don't really know what time of the night this is, but it seems pretty late to have somebody just, a cop just stopping by the house. 
Yeah, this sequence was really strange. Yeah. Um, uh, the editing here gets very uh, ambitious, uh, but it's like maybe the only instance of it in the whole movie. So I don't know who came up with this or why they decided to do it this way, but it sticks out like a sore thumb because, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, Nancy's or Peggy. <laughs> I'm always going to get them mixed up. Yeah, right. They're, they're those kind of names. <laughs> um, uh, Peggy's upstairs and she's in bed. And the way they, the way they frame this is, it's not necessarily a dream. It's almost like she's remembering the conversation that we missed. So it's like it's clips of her and her husband talking about what to do about Katie. Um, but it keeps coming in the form of these little bubbles that appear on the screen and kind of like pass by. But when we do that, when we composite that footage of of those little bubbles of them having like snippets of conversations, uh, her footage, the the main footage of her in bed, turns into a still frame. And it's really obvious that there's like no motion or life Mm. to it. (laughs) It's like, it's really bizarre. And I don't know if it was like, I don't know, like a logistical thing, like maybe on a technical level, this is the only way they could do that. Um, but it's a it's a strange technique. Um, I'm not sure if it actually works, but I noticed it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, anyway, I I did like some of the the shots, like the shadowy shots in the house of her coming down the stairs. Like the shadows splayed out across the wall look like coiled vines kind of like it looks like she's going through like a jungle or something mm. which fits being as katie is often spoken of as like an animal or something he has one his scene at the end when he jumps into the river is really good he turns into a fucking alligator <laughs> he's, he's say, killer croc <laughs> he's wearing the same outfit as hannibal lecter is wearing at the end of sounds of the lambs similar body type too except robert mitchum's probably a, a skosh taller yeah but um yeah <laughs> Sir Anthony Hopkins has always had that like that power belly. <laughs> it's like I don't think he's actually strong, but he's he just has a shape to him. He has mm. a he has a little bit of a keg, but it, it doesn't make him any less menacing. No, it's just it's just his pants are always about six inches higher than I personally would ever wear my pants. <laughs> it's like the man has no navel. <laughs> like his his belly button has never been seen on film, <laughs> um, but. Uh, yeah, uh, the cops are talking to Sam out front. Uh, so we we have an exchange here where uh, I think I think we fade to mourning from uh, husband and wife embracing, and she actually says to him, "Don't you ever do that to me again." Yeah, put a pin in that. Um, as in, like, don't don't leave me when shit's getting hairy. Yeah. So yeah, put the biggest of pins in that. <laughs> but yeah, uh, we cut to a courtroom real quick and. Uh, Sam is told by one of his aides that uh, police chief wants to see his ass now uh, while he's in court. So this is real important. Uh, so he goes to the precinct to talk to the chief. And uh, Katie is here uh, with, I didn't catch this guy's name, but he's a southern gentleman lawyer. <laughs> he's very much doing a very southern southern lawyer accent. Yeah. So Katie, Katie has a pretty heavy accent. This guy's dialed up to 11, though. Mm-hmm. He's Foghorn Leghorn. Oh yeah, I say, I say, I say, my client. <laughs> Basically, the the sit down is with Katie, his lawyer, and Chief, um, who surprisingly was actually played by Robert Mitchum in the Scorsese film, and the lawyer for Max Katie was played by Gregory Peck, which is super Correct. fun. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're having a sit down, and basically the gist of it is they've been harassing Katie. Uh, he, they've had no reason to. Uh, they've 
arrested him twice. Uh, he spent the night in jail. He's been, uh, they've searched his apartment and, uh, and they're trying to, the lawyer's basically trying to say is like, people are going to start talking like he's doing something wrong. And this is more or less slander against my client. He hasn't been doing anything. I'm like, but people don't even know who he is. It's like, well, people talk, you know, and basically they're like, this is a warning. You need to leave my client alone because you guys are, you're not going, you're not doing this right, basically. Yeah, uh, he makes it known that um, posting, oh yeah, by, by the way, the conversation concludes with him saying, like, posting two police officers at Mr. Bowden's house every night is a gross mismanagement of police mm-hmm. resources. Yeah. And um, credit to Gregory Peck here, this is where his particular acting abilities, like his tool set, comes in handy. He just kind of furrows his brow out. I don't think he can unfurrow his brow. Mm-mm. Gregory Peck is just always kind of perturbed, just a little bit. Like it's like somebody farted in the room. Like, or maybe something's wrong with his senses, where he just <laughs> there's a bad smell everywhere he goes. Friends, it's, like, it's called a smell the fart acting. <laughs> yeah, he's like. Then I ask, who furnished you with this information? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, hmm, good point. No, I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> but it's pretty obvious that. Katie is probably watching his property. Um, so the chief tells us about a, uh, a previous instance where something like this went down. Like, basically, he's reminding Sam of how the law works. And there's a lot of reiteration of this throughout the movie because I think that was probably chiefly the point of the story. It was about the legal system and the the flaws and the capabilities of it. Listen, Death Wish is going to come out here. Shortly. <laughs> Throw a monkey wrench into fucking everything. <laughs> yeah. Definitely is going to come out, and you can't just have white guy justice uh, out there on the streets. You have, there's due process. People actually have to commit a crime. I, so, what, Death Wish is the rebuttal in the form of, yeah, everything that guy just said is bullshit. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. You don't like that guy because you don't think that he's a good guy? Fucking shoot him. In Death Wish, <laughs> in Death Wish terms. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying in Death Wish logic. Yeah, no, this was before that, but uh, the 70s were a very different time. Yeah. Um, But uh, basically the chief tells uh, Sam about something he refers to as the Hoffman murder, um, which was an instance where a woman called like week after week saying like, my husband's going to kill me. He's going to kill me. He's going to kill me. And uh, they couldn't do it. Nothing about it was legally actionable. So the department couldn't do anything. And uh, sure enough, she ended up getting killed by her husband. Yep. Um, and the chief kind of lays it out plainly. That's like, you know, that doesn't make me happy, but unfortunately that's the system. Um, he says, I, <clears throat> he says yeah. we either have too many laws or not enough. Exactly. That's how the conversation ends. And, you know, good point. Uh, mm-hmm. It's one of those conversations that I guess is like the topic of the day right now. <laughs> yeah. uh, but cut to, uh, oh, uh, the chief also advises Sam to hire a private detective uh, because this is where he's, understanding that's like the kind of help that sam's asking me for i can't legally provide it's interesting that this film came out in 1962 and we have a movie about stepping on another person's rights to being arrested and searched however we're in the thick thick of racial tension in america especially in the south now do you think that's a coincidence or do you think it was just like they that wasn't even that wasn't even thought of at this time like that this was a problem uh probably not even thought of yeah Um, that's unfortunate maybe maybe not in the mainstream obviously you know people all throughout history have 
I want to say not been as dumb as we all think they were. Like there were a lot, no, there, <laughs> there were a lot of dumb. very intelligent, brilliant people all, throughout all of history. There it's was just, a lot of older white dudes with high and tights back then that weren't in the military. So. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sure in certain circles, it was certainly a, a consistent talking point. But in like mainstream Hollywood and stuff, it's probably just something. It's like, I, well, whatever. I, I ask because... Gregory Peck in To Kill a Mockingbird is representing a man who was wrongfully accused of murder, who was, who was black. And, mm. I mean, I think segregation, I mean, America was still segregated in 1962, if I'm not mistaken. It wasn't until 1963 when mm. um, segregation was abolished. So, it, it just, it, it's ironic that this is happening on the cusp of that. Yeah, no, it's good to bring it up. Mm. But, um, so, cut to uh, Katie, uh, driving the lady from the bar around so apparently he, he uh grabbed that and I, I noticed that he had um you know how han solo has dice dangling from his dashboard oh, <laughs> he has dice dangling from his dashboard yeah you didn't know that that doesn't make any fucking sense so in that in in that time in that world dice were a thing well, they're they're gold and they're hanging from a chain, so they're, oh, okay. they're probably not called dice. They're probably I thought they were legit something. dice. I'm like, they're probably wait called, a like, minute, there, yeah. George. But, but no, that that's a prop that's been there since the beginning, and in fact, they factor it into like the plot of the Last Jedi, where it's the token that uh, Luke hands off to Leia. Anyway, um, <laughs> I noticed that Max <laughs> Cady has a couple of miniature boxing gloves hanging from his uh, rearview mirror. And I was mm. like, hmm, that's not good. <laughs> that's not good for anyone. <laughs> Um, and of course we have a lovely, uh, rear projection effect to simulate driving. Uh, this is always charming. <laughs> yes. I love the rear projection, <laughs> especially well, like when it it's Seinfeld. done bad. <laughs> I always like it in Seinfeld. I'm like, does Manhattan look like that? I'm like, I, don't think it does. <laughs> I like, uh, Sean Connery's rear projection driving because he is just like spinning that wheel, like, <laughs> like a crazy person. It's like, dude, just stay, stay in the lane. <laughs> like, that's all you have to do. But um, this is where we get introduced to Telly Savalas. Who loved you, baby? Yeah, and I like, uh, he, I like him. he is tailing Katie. Um, he's got a hat on while he's driving because that's what you did in 1962. And uh, we have an exchange between the gal and uh, Max Katie in the car. And she tells him that what I like about you is that you're rock bottom. Like, I can't, I can't do any worse than you. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty <laughs> shitty thing to say to somebody. By the way, uh, Jim Crow laws were segregation was abolished in 1964, so it was just around the corner. Gotcha. I thought it was Thanks 63, but 63 was the march on Washington. Thanks for looking that up. Sorry. <laughs> that uh, would be a bad thing to get wrong. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah <right>. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, jeez. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, you think I'm Lawrence Fishburne? Jesus Christ. That is, the, that is one of the... It's kind of heartbreaking to watch. It, it it sounded like it was kind of funny when you see Samuel L. Jackson's reaction, but his reaction is not. It's not funny. It's actually kind of sad to see that mm-hmm. that clip. I watched it recently. Um, anyway, so uh, Chief tells Sam to hire a private detective. Um, I thought this was the lady from the bar. Uh, however, it isn't. And yes, Telly Savalas, the PI, is uh, following him. And he, they, I guess they pull in some place and Telly, I want to call him Telly, not the PI. It's just a better name. Uh, Telly goes to a phone booth. You can booth. always just call him Kojak. <laughs> Kojak, yeah. Well, Kojak, the only Kojak I know of is Ving Rhames. Um, oh, okay. But he goes to a telephone booth, and I wondered why they did this. He's talking outside of the booth. I mean, that was like the whole thing is you go inside the booth to talk, but maybe it was just a logistics thing. Like, it was just going to sound bad. 
But he, I thought he implied that she was a prostitute that he was up there with. Mm, I don't know if that was the case. However, he he does say that she's over eighteen, and uh, he 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 requests that they charge him with lewd vacancy, which mm-hmm. maybe points to prostitution. That's what I was uh, thinking. Yeah, um, I don't know the legality behind the word lewd and vagrancy put in combination, but that would be my guess. I um, like this scene so much better than the Scorsese one because the Scorsese one is... I watched that movie kind of young. One of the most brutal scenes from a movie I've ever seen. It's bad. It's pretty rough. Um, it's rough. I watched, I watched it for the first time with my parents, and uh, they, weren't, they weren't happy when that came up. Like, they were like, ooh, I don't know if this was a good idea. <laughs> like... Um, Because, yeah, it was especially brutal. Um, This one, I I liked it quite a bit. I thought it was handled a lot better. Um, (laughs) Nobody loses a cheek. (laughs) Nobody loses a cheek. Um, But more than that, I feel like it it fit the theme of this story a lot better. It was more consistent with the writing, I guess. Because in the the Scorsese one, it's more of like just a shocking moment among many. Like it's just kind of a, a gross, mean moment, and and it doesn't really have much of a bearing on the rest of the story. Whereas this one, uh, we have a callback to it in the form of uh, Gregory Peck talking about what it would mean to bring their daughter to court, mm-hmm. um, which is like a reiteration of everything that happens with this woman, where it's like, oh, we got to see an example of what that looks like, and it's horrible. It's hideous. Um, but yeah, the way this goes down is uh, we cut to the like a hotel or apartment or wherever that uh, Katie and this woman are in. And he's standing over her and the music is really ominous as he's like brushing his knuckles, standing over her on the bed. And uh, she kind of puts two and two together and tries to take off and he grabs her. And uh, we're spared any sort of visual element in terms of like the violence that's visited upon her um, in the form of uh, some shutter doors, like flinging in front of the camera as he throws her under the bed. Uh, so it conceals anything that may have happened. Uh, and uh, the cops rush in uh, after like an indeterminate amount of time. And uh, Katie is gone, and we have this drawn-out sequence where they're kind of stalking around the room trying to find him or her. And eventually they discover her like on the side of the bed. And uh, the music explodes when she turns her face to the camera, and we see that she has a bruised face. I um, mean, it's awful, but... My God, they had no idea what was coming in 1991. Well, yeah, no. In terms of like the visual element of the horror here, the makeup is is really minor. Um, yeah. The music is a little out of proportion with the horror of her slightly bruised <laughs> face. Yeah. But the the implication of what we saw preceding all that is pretty strong and pretty obvious. Yeah. Um, so. Like, even if it doesn't look right, uh, the emotions are there. Well, I mean, the thing is, is with that scene with Scorsese, is we do see, like, like inside the room, but also we get a really nice shot of him. We get a shadow of him outside, so you can see, like, the physicality with that, where he's really laying into this person. And you could have almost just done that and not have the cheek biting. Cause the, the cheek biting. <laughs> Jeez, I mean, as a kid, you're like, oh, that can happen? Like, that can happen to you? People can just do that? I'm like, yeah, because I didn't know what fish hooking was yet either. So I'm like, Jesus, people, calm down. It's just, it's just a Donnybrook. Like, well, I mean, maybe it speaks to me being being a, a, a dude, but seeing a woman get outright slugged on film, it never looks good. No. Um, it's, it's, 
a horrible thing. It's not some. It's actually very rare in film um, mm-hmm. to the point that's like when you see it, you again as a dude, I can't help but wince usually. Oh, um, Sonia getting kicked by Kano. <laughs> that gut kick, yeah. Ooh, that, yeah. <laughs> no milk will be our milk, Kano. <laughs> will be our milk. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, this whole sequence after they discover the girl in the room, um, this plays out over several minutes. Um, they take their time with this, and I think it's to the benefit of the film. Um, it starts out kind of goofy because it puts you definitely in the shoes of dudes, like white dudes in 1962 because this this cop walks out into the hallway to talk to charlie to talk to telly savalas and he's like something kind of weird happened to her <laughs> it's like oh you think like, assault jeez way to undercut everything but yeah, this um, is handled very very badly uh he's like yeah she won't say nothing so telly savalas <laughs> goes in and he's trying to comfort her and like listen i need you to talk about this and like if you don't talk about it uh, then we can't arrest this guy. And this is a really long scene, but she's just very much like, I don't, like, the humiliation of having to do something like this. Like, she's like, I don't want to go through that. And Telly is surprisingly supportive of that. I feel like he would have been a little bit more like, no, 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 you can't be doing that. But she gives her a reason. He's like, well, okay. And then he's going to try his plan B, which is to have Sam actually talk to her. Yeah, it's a it's a very carefully directed scene because mm-hmm. the blocking especially a lot of it I think most of it's done in one take but like his his body language and his positioning relative to her he's at a distance for most of it and he's not even making eye contact with her for most of it like he's usually facing away and he's giving her a lot of space mm-hmm. and in fact she doesn't even speak for more than half of the scene she's just kind of processing and he's understanding that she's not able to communicate right now but he keeps trying to guide her so he's he definitely has an agenda but he's not like beating her over the head with it. he's just kind of like laying down a path that's like if you want to go down this road i have a suggestion for you yeah. but she's she's not having it but he he opens things with like you're, you're probably hurt worse than you realize would you like me to get a doctor it's like yeah. <laughs> like could i just have a minute please could i have a fucking minute yeah yeah um but yeah he's trying to like kind of ease her into doing what he needs her to and uh as he's talking to her though she just before even responding to him verbally uh, she gets on the phone and she calls a cab to drive her to the bus station uh, so she knows what she wants right now she just yeah. wants get the fuck out of here and uh she finally speaks up and she says something along the lines of like when he when he as in katie uh, left this room he said to consider this every horrible thing that happened to me uh, a sample uh, so she's taking that to heart that like this this guy is an animal and I don't trust for a second that if you were to put him away for a couple months he wouldn't find a way to find me again yeah um, but yeah she does mention um, exactly what Kyle had talked about earlier that the the prospect of airing all this shit in a public forum like a courtroom or something is at this very moment just too much like she's like what about my family I'm someone's daughter too um, Which is understandable. Absolutely. It's, it's Especially like five minutes after the shit happened. <laughs> very difficult thing to do. And w- how they do it in Cape Fear 91 is that this was a woman who was waiting for Sam in the in, in the bar. And he never shows up. He stood her up. And she mm-hmm. went home with him. She's like, I don't want to explain to my colleagues and in front of your wife and everyone we work with what I was doing there. 
we were we were we were about to have an affair. We were on our way to having an affair, and that's why mm. I was there. Mm. So. Yeah. Um. But yeah, Sam arrives eventually, and this is kind of like Kyle had said. Telly Savalas is like his trump card. Mm-hmm. He's like, okay, like if I can't say anything, maybe the guy who I'm doing this all for, who has something to lose, maybe he can convince her. And uh, she just kind of walks past him. Like she acknowledges that, uh, oh, you're the guy that, you know, Katie's actually after. Mm, that's nice. And she just <laughs> quietly walks past him down the stairs. And we have this lovely moment where she stops and she just looks back and says, I'm sorry. Like, I'm really sorry. That's it. <laughs> and she leaves. Um, so Charlie advises Sam to uh, re- reach out to some lit, legit fucking gangster types. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> he knows some people on the waterfront. Yeah. And he's like, I'll think about it <laughs> this is where i like joe don baker like he adds a different energy to that film like everybody's kind of except for katie like everyone's just like calm cool collect the chief's a little bit animated but joe don baker's like he's almost like a comedy relief a little bit just this his timing in that movie what i like about him in in the scorsese version is that he he strikes me as the kind of guy who actually enjoys what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Like Very he, much. he want he wants an escalation. Like he actually has, I was telling you off air that I like that he actually has a face to face with Katie mm-hmm. and they have a verbal exchange and he's like, you, you get froggy, you, you jump because yeah. <laughs> like, I'll blast your ass. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's great uh, because it, it creates a different dynamic between the two characters in that it creates one. But I just like the idea of that, that character who, it, it really is like a trigger happy guy who who wants it to get there so he can do so he can take things further um and it's his his end in that film is even better because of that because it's like well you got in over your head like mm-hmm. you got it's like you you got what you wanted and it wasn't good <laughs> yeah. the thing here is that telly's telling him to hire some uh, some guys with some pipes and they're gonna go to town on him with a wrench and a blowtorch but sam's just not about it and he's just like no i'm, I'm that's too far. I can't take it that far. <laughs> so it's like, you see this suit? It costs more than your house. <laughs> so we cut to the docks uh, with the family. Um, and the daughter is left alone on the boat uh, because reasons. I, I yeah. guess mom and dad had to go get some stuff from the shack or something. But um, Katie arrives in his uh, striped Kirk Douglas shirt. Um, <laughs> yeah, reminded me of Ned Land's outfit Ned, from Twenty Thousand yeah. Leagues. Looking like Ned. Yeah, <laughs> he ain't no in singing. Like <laughs> but uh, Katie has a striped shirt, and he is watching the daughter from above on the on the dock. And uh, Peck Gregory Peck steps to him. Uh, he sees Katie hanging out on the dock, and uh, I loved uh, I loved Katie's reaction to Sam questioning him like you get out of here you you swine um kyle do you remember what he said to him in response what about the beer yeah i don't have it verbatim no (laughs) he's like well i'm just drinking this beer counselor counselor? (laughs) he has this tall boy and he's just like well i'm just drinking this beer product placement works because now uh folks at home i never drink on the podcast but i'm drinking my uh my miller high life right now the champagne of beers uh i got some garbage beer yeah, I don't know how how drinking and podcasts go together. I think we've I think you've only drank once one other time. On the I had show. a little bit of red wine. Yeah, yeah, it was a long time ago. Long time um, ago, and you you got a little loopy, but it was still fun. 
Yeah, you, was, <laughs> you, you got loose. <laughs> I was having a day. I was having a. I was having a day that day, and I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna have some wine because this is my free time while doing the podcast. I'm like, I'm gonna have a little wine. But no, I was also a different drinker back then. <laughs> it's a couple years ago now, so yeah, yeah right. A lot can change. Well, yeah, throttled quite back. <laughs> uh, so yeah, uh, he's just drinking his beer, and uh, this is where I really noticed the the height discrepancy between the two of them. By the way, and I was like, oh. Mitchum's kind of well, fucking, he's not he's not short, but Gregory, Gregory Peck is very tall. Gregory Peck is like a forward. Like he, he looks like a basketball player. He's fucking huge. Dude, his shoulders are fucking wide. He looks like what is it is it David Byrne, the talking heads guy? <laughs> like, yeah. He looks like him, but yeah. without the giant suit. It's like, no, that's his skeletal structure. <laughs> he's he's big, yeah. Yeah, but uh, Katie uh, says some nasty shit about his daughter. Um, mm. I didn't write it down because it's pretty, it's pretty racy for 1962. Um, and uh, Sam throws some uneducated punches <laughs> at Max Katie, uh, who does not fight back. And I believe this happened in the remake as well, right? Yeah, they're at a they're at a parade, and this is kind of things are escalating a little bit like past this point. And he sees Katie just across the way, uh, watching them, and he just goes over and attacks him. Which is, and he he, mes- he mentions something about his daughter or wife or something. Um, yeah, uh, but yeah, the the long and short of it is that he he throws some punches at Katie, who does not respond in kind. He he, he knows that as soon as he throws something back, they can make moves against him so he's just like no i'm not gonna do anything and he makes a big show of it in front of the crowd he's like oh you saw it like he, he swung at me i didn't do nothing <laughs> like do nothing he done provoked just started like, swinging at me that y'all seen it um but yeah uh the daughter uh witnesses this exchange and determines that oh that that That's guy the in the guy. striped shirt has to be the guy who killed my dog katie um and we have a moment where uh, we cut to school and a whole flock of young girls are coming out the door and uh, including Sam's daughter. And uh, she gets into her mom's car just as she's supposed to. But mom's not there. Uh, so she gets in the car and she hops in the driver's seat and like puts on the radio and whatnot. And we get this long, drawn-out sequence where we see Katie. like, And this is kind of chilling, actually, where Katie is just walking straight towards the camera. Yeah. And we keep cutting back and forth between her noticing him and staring straight ahead. And like literally, it's like a straight shot to her. And, of course, it's pretty obvious that he sees her and she sees him um and this goes on for a long time but she has a little bit of a freak out here (laughs) um i guess this was a little bit traumatic for the actress um understandably so because she's having to run around panicked all over the place like through Mm. the school into like the locker room into the boiler room and she's convinced that katie's pursuing her um we do discover that no he didn't even go into the school it's just some other guy walking around like a, a custodian or something she went into the boiler room i'm like watch out for freddy i uh, mean honestly and yeah. also the lighting in that room i was like that's the luke skywalker return of the jedi lighting right there like i'm doing the math nightmare on elm street was like 84 if i'm not mistaken i think you're right 84 i'm like yeah freddy was in full swing right now like he was still like killing children down in the boiler room or yeah he's still doing stuff I'm like this could have very possibly been freddy krueger so yeah that was that was in his uh fred krueger days <laughs> krueger uh yeah um, this is no i like i had to rewind this because of the editing through here so um steph was watching this with me she's like is that even him and i'm like you know what you're probably right she's really good at the she's really good at picking up stuff like this especially with these older movies she she sees right past it um but yeah he 
she escapes out the window and it's just some other guy and she's like running like looking behind her uh, out of the school and she bumps right into Katie who's just sucking on his cigar um, he just kind of grabs a hold of her like he doesn't do anything with her but he just grabs her for a second to scare the piss out of her and she takes off running into the street and did you notice this edit here where she gets hit by the car it was very yeah. I think I'm gonna say it was kind of good uh, it was very subtle because normally you would just go she would just see someone like run into the street and then <gasps> next shot they would just be on the ground but they actually have her like falling being hit by the car yeah normally you would just cut away and have a sound effect or something um but no they do like a little bit of speed ramping because she probably did the whole thing in slow motion yeah. and the car probably like eased forward but then they sped up the footage um but yeah it looks pretty good like it yeah. doesn't look sloppy or ugly or anything um nice yeah she gets bopped by a car she doesn't yeah. get run over or anything um, and then mom finds Katie. the vacant car, and uh, eventually she sees a, a crowd forming somewhere down the street, and she finds her daughter, and uh, Katie's nowhere to be seen. This would have been a great moment. I'm like, what the fuck, Peggy? Like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> Jesus. Um, <laughs> you, this... had, you had one job, Peggy. Yeah. <laughs> Even now, you, you, can, you can kind of defend him being stoic up to when he punches Katie. At this point, this is where I can see him getting hysterical, like getting... A little more, uh, like I said, I think Jimmy Stewart, although it would have been a little too cartoonish, would have given more of like a uh, an upset kind of uh, uh, an upset kind of performance. Where this is where his daughter's gotten hit by a car. You'd think he would be like, "Oh, this is this has gotten out of, out of control" or nothing. But no, he's still just, "Well, we got to do something about this." <laughs> it's like, well, you know, Peggy, we probably need to do something about. Max Katie. Gregory, <laughs> is your wife single? <laughs> <laughs> She's off the market, James. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, Mom comes home and she is pissed at her hubby. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she... I didn't quite catch what was going on here. I think he was leaving the house because he was going to go look for Katie or something? So yeah, he was going to go do something. And um, this, this was interesting. So... He, this is where he mentions the court. Like, he, he's kind of... So I know how the Scorsese one goes. It's like, um, the chief... Nick Nolte's uh, Sam thinks that the chief implies that he should use his daughter and family as bait. And he's like, that's not at all what I was saying. And that also kind of sticks with him. Um, and here, he kind of, it's kind of his idea. And I thought he was kind of mentioning it here. Or he I wasn't comes- quite certain. Because uh, he walks off and she's super pissed at him to the point that she's like you leave this house i'm gonna call the cops on you and i was like i i'm sorry i was looking down at the moment what happened but oh he uh, pulls out a gun short of it, he pulls out a gun and, ah so yeah he's going to look for katie yeah um but yeah the long and short of it is she gets on the phone and we have this uh this decently long sequence actually where the camera holds on her face and uh, she's we get to go through the whole process of going through the switchboard and the operator yeah. and all that of her just trying to get on the line with the correct person. Um, but in the time it takes her to get to the chief's office on the phone, um, her husband's come back and uh, they embrace. Uh, so I guess she got what she needed from him. Um, and then we cut to a bar and uh, okay. this was, this is one of the better moments in the whole film. This is uh, one of the best moments. I think this is the best moment of the whole film. This is a very, this is a very good scene. It's very dark, but I it's it's got some humor with it too, in my opinion. Well, this is this is them finally 
having the proper face-to-face every every other time it's been in public with like mm-hmm. a lot of people buzzing around or more than that uh like the chief or attorneys in the same room with them this is just the two two men like having a face-to-face like actual confrontation now uh, so all the barriers are removed um but this is uh katie coming down into the same bar that i guess he's been frequenting lately and uh, he finds sam in a booth in the back and uh they sit down to have a conversation here and uh, Katie mentions, uh, for, for eight solid years, I sweat. <laughs> um, so he's basically trying to reiterate that's like, you know, eight years is a long time. Um, I had a lot to think about and a lot of a lot of grief to go with it. But uh, Sam offers Katie some money. And I think it was like $10,000 now, $10,000 over the next year and a half or something. Yeah, it's like over the next two years. And uh, Katie retorts with like what do you reckon eight years lost is worth like like time like if you fact and he actually does some quick math in his head and he's like have you ever heard of minimum wage because that ain't it (laughs) like honestly uh so he's not happy with the the money proposal um and this kyle um i'm gonna let you handle this because i want to say that you probably retained it better than i did because there's a lot of detail here but it's katie telling us a story yeah so well i i do like how he's ordering drinks he's like he orders like you know what they have a really good 12 year old scotch give me a double of that uh and i like how he drinks it it's really interesting because you don't you don't shoot scotch it's just not a whiskey that you shoot and he's just you it's a sipper it's very much a sipper and he's just in there taking shots of 12-year-old scotch, which is a nice little touch. And this time, more so than now, people know that. Like, that's not how you drink scotch. So I just thought that was a, a nice little touch. And he keeps ordering them, by the way. So, yeah, he tries to pay him off, and Katie gives him, like, the spiel. He's like, I didn't just lose my time. He's like, I lost my family. He's like, I went in with a wife and a son. And my wife wasn't upset about the charges. She was just upset that I was in prison, I believe. And she divorced me. He's like, I signed the divorce papers in prison. And she went off with some other guy. And he said, I think he said, I thought every day for like seven years how I was going to kill him. Or maybe or maybe it was uh, Sam that he was going to kill. I but love I, the way he phrased it, actually. He said, I killed that man for mm-hmm. seven years. So in his head, he played years. out the scenario of him yeah. killing, killing and, Sam. And, and he got bored of that. <laughs> and he's like, so when he got out, he... Went over to her house in the middle of the day when his son or daughter was gone and he was gone and he took her. He took his ex-wife and he made her write love letters and lo- write a letter to her husband now that they're going to go off uh, on, a, on a honeymoon that uh, they didn't get to go on or something. Mm-hmm. And he tells him point blank, he's like, yeah. And then I had her for like three days by myself if you catch my meaning. And it's like, wait a minute, did you just say you raped your ex-wife for three days? And it's like, he doesn't even, it's just so casual the way he hands it to him. He's like, this is this information. And it's, I mean, he may as well have been saying, I went fishing for the weekend. <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's that, it's that loose. And I think it. this delivery, I mean, say what you will about De Niro's performance. This delivery by him is fucking chilling. And <clears throat> that's why I say it's probably the best scene in the films because this is just dialogue between the two of them. And this is, this is really good. Well, and it's also uh, the two acting performances complement each other here a lot better than they do in the rest of the film. And yeah. These two characters actually don't have too much dialogue between each other, so this scene's doubly important because of that. But what I like is that Gregory Peck's character 
and maybe Gregory Peck himself like kind of gives the floor to to Robert Mitchum just kind of like lets him have the scene because Gregory Peck just has to take the brunt of it and just react to all of it he doesn't actually say much here but there's one moment I really loved where it's 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 small but it jumped out at me where um as he's talking about the raping of his wife and whatnot Gregory Peck just is like why why are you telling me this and Robert Mitchum for the like maybe the only time in the whole movie where he really gets venomous like actually speaks in a threatening manner with like raising his voice he just kind of like hisses through his teeth and he's like because I want to tell you this it's like Mm. oh (laughs) again to to quote the the Zack Snyder Watchmen it's like I'm not in here with you you're in here with me (laughs) Um, Um, so it's like you I got you now like you're gonna hear this because this is this is part of what I'm doing to you is uh, mm-hmm. the the neat thing about him saying I killed that man for seven years is that he says in that last year it occurred to me that I was getting tired of that like seven years of killing the same guy that's gonna get a little old eventually so he's like it's more interesting to me to find a way to kill you by by a thousand cuts as he phrases yeah. it rather than just outright with my bare hands that's easy uh, so this is part of it is just poisoning your mind with the horrible shit I've done. <laughs> Katie cannot be bought. I mean, he has no, like you have nothing to offer me, nothing to threaten me with. He's really giving him a, a real joker here. And uh, I love this scene. I like this where this he exits basically, and uh, Gregory Peck is still going to pay for the drinks, which I thought was really kind of funny. After all this, he's like, uh, he's like, you're just a fucking animal. He's like, I've met a lot of pieces of shit in my day, but he's like, you are the lowest of the low, and. He's like, it makes me sick to breathe the same air. And he leaves the money, and I love Max Katie's like, oh, look at that. He left me enough money for another drink. And uh, he's like, orders another scotch. I like how he calls the, the bartender, uh, or the waiter, uh, Buster. <laughs> Buster, yeah. He just, like, every every time he says something awful, there will be a pause, and he'll just, like, look over his shoulder and be like, hey, Buster. <laughs> like, another, another can drink I get another here. drink over here? My brother here wants to buy me another drink. Yeah, <laughs> my rich cousin over my here. My rich cousin. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, so this this scumbag. is the breaking point. This is the breaking point. He goes home and he's like, "I'm phoning in that ass beating. Uh, it needs to happen." <laughs> and it's kind of a, it was kind of a strange cut. I like how it's done in the Scorsese film. It's like three guys come out from behind a dumpster, and it's a really good scene. And probably the most iconic uh, scene from that film is the Nick Nolte's actually there watching it happen. That's that was really good in yeah. that one. Yeah. yeah. Um, he know it's it's one of those things where it's like there there's a little bit of like some supernatural shit going on in that movie that i think it i think it works for the most part because like max katie has a little bit of superpowers in that a little bit just a little bit it it's it's like borderline like magical realism where it's like he he's doing things you really shouldn't be able to i mean Chief among which strapping yourself underneath a vehicle in motion. <laughs> I was telling Steph about that. I'm like, that's fucking awesome. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, um, him him yelling out for the counselor and whatnot, like using his spider sense to determine that well, he's there. He's just like, could you be there? And he's like, he just stops. He's like, fuck it. I know you're there. And he just yeah. like tosses the pipe and walks away. Oh, such a good scene. No, it's great. Um, but yeah, in this one, it happens on a beach. Yeah. Uh, below the docks and uh just like in the scorsese one somebody has a a wad of bike chains yeah um I creative g- weaponry i guess um, i don't maybe that was a thing back in the day that's what i was wondering i'm like is that a thing 
I mean, I know of I know of a handful of improvised weapons that are were definitely prevalent in the day, but that is not one of them. Think about think about customer service back then. Like who who would you most want to put hands on back then as somebody who's screwing you over? A mechanic. Mechanic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so it makes that. sense that a mechanic would be like this is the bill. He's just got his chains ready to go. And they're like, well, what the fuck? This wasn't wrong. Well, I found more things wrong. <laughs> and then just, well, now that you mention it, my dad always told me a car antenna was a favorite one. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of, and like radiator hose. So, yeah, a lot of car stuff, a lot, yeah. a lot of vehicle weaponry. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, uh, bike chains. Um, Katie gets roughed up pretty thoroughly, but he also dishes out as good as he gets. Um mm-hmm. And I cut to Mrs. Bowden uh, getting a phone call in the middle of the evening uh, by a bloody Max Katie. And he just casually goes to a payphone to ring her up. And uh, he gets another Joker moment here where his laugh through the phone, which uh, the audio of which is played through the phone. Yeah. Uh, and it gives it that nice distortion that gives it a extra sinister layer to it. Uh, it's pretty terrific. Um, but what he says to uh, Sam uh, who picks up the phone after his wife is a uh, you just put the law on my hands and i'm gonna break your heart with it <laughs> well like, he oh. also says he's like remember that story i told you well i think that i mean with your wife and daughter that's that was just like a little what i did with my wife was just a little thing you know i have a whole thing planned for your wife and your daughter which is like holy shit that yeah not good. Uh, and i mean now that you've had this face to face with the man it's like mm pretty much understand that what he says he means and uh yeah the way he phrases it i've got something planned for your wife and kid that they're never gonna forget okay he has to die like now (laughs) like like immediately (laughs) um but this is where uh the plan starts to form where uh, sam and his wife uh the way the scene actually opens is she's just staring at him and he's not even on camera it's just a close-up of her face wide-eyed and she's like i can't believe we're standing here in our home talking about killing a man like seriously and sam this is where uh, we talked about this many times already uh, he's very clinical about the scheme that they're coming up with he's like we need to use nancy for bait Yes, I think that's the right way to go about things. <laughs> Vincent, she's not old. Oh, Vincent. <laughs> Gregory, she's not old enough to be bait just yet. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's very clinical about it. Um, he, he, I guess he, he feels that this is warranted, but we cut to the courthouse real quick. And uh, Sam and Katie's attorney, who we met earlier, have an exchange here, and she he tells him that uh, one of the goons that went out to beat on Katie uh, spilled his guts, uh, not literally. <laughs> and uh, Sam is in danger of being disbarred at this point. He's being investigated, and he has to go to a uh, a hearing of some sort. And uh, Sam hands his caseload over to his aide, and this is where Kyle was talking to me about, like, this would be one of those scenes that in the Nick Nolte version... This is where he'd have maybe a bit of a emotional or like he'd throw a tantrum here or something like no. just show that it's he's he's worn down like his defenses are lowered. Um, meanwhile, the the chief uh, wants Sam to hide his family on a houseboat in Cape Fear, uh, mm. so we get title drop here. And uh, the plan, I guess, is they want to swerve Katie into thinking that uh, Sam is is at the hearing for his. I, I guess disbarment um, in Atlanta, 
Um, they're going to trick him into thinking he's there so they can set a trap for him in Cape Fear. And the problem here, the dilemma, is that it's like, dude, Sam, you can't just shoot a guy for stepping onto your property. He has to, like, do something. And it's like, well, that's what my daughter's for. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah. It's right. like, okay, pretty cavalier about that, but okay. Um, I'm going to make an yeah, offer we, he we, can't refuse. <laughs> we, uh, we get a scene here where we, uh, Sam and his family, they all hop in a boat, and they drive out to Cape Fear on the river. Um, I thought they were going to make something of this because there's just this random moment where Sam turns the boat around and he's like, I think I took a wrong turn, honey. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's like, I thought, what I thought was going to happen was that there was going to be a hiccup in the plan where Charlie was coming out to meet them and he'd get lost or something and their plan would get really fucked over. Mm. Never, never comes up, but it's just a random thing that's in there. It doesn't add anything. Um, but we have some day for night business on the houseboat. Uh, Sam leaves his family, and I'm glad to see that pickles are considered essential provisions because <laughs> <laughs> they have a gigantic jar of pickles. Did you ever <laughs> see that uh, Pleasantville William H Macy um, uh, Spider-Man? Um, he ends up going to jail for the night because of whatever was happening in that movie, and uh, he brings William H Macy brings him some food, and he's like, "I brought you something to eat," and it's just a jar of olives. He's like, there wasn't any, your mother's not home, so she's not cooking anything. So this is all we had. <laughs> so I wonder if there's just like, yeah, everybody just had pickled things in their, in their cupboards. Like that's, it's food. <laughs> 1962 diet. <laughs> yeah. Pickles. Yeah, everybody had the gout. That's why they, everybody had the gout because everybody's eating stuff out of cans with uh, tons of sodium in it. There you go. Uh, organ meats and pickles. <laughs> that's what we lived off of. Um, but yeah, uh, Wife and husband have a smooch before we cut to uh, Katie at the airport watching Sam get on a plane, or at least he thinks so. And uh, he even is trying to be clever about it, where he even asks, like, the front desk, like, can you confirm that that super handsome guy with the eyebrows did, in fact, get on that plane? And they're like, oh, yeah, they, he registered coming back on Thursday. And he's like, okay, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna hold you to that. Trevor, before we move forward, I want to tell you something about um, the insects of uh, North Carolina. Mm. Now, North Carolina, uh, I've lived in a, a few states, and North Carolina has the worst bugs I've come in contact with. We have fire ants, and if they bite you, it fucking hurts, and it will leave a zit. It leaves a nice pussy thing for you to pop later. They're disgusting Ugh. little creatures. They're nasty. Uh, we are constantly bit by these little biting flies. Uh, they're all over the place. They're sons of bitches. So I just want you to know that North Carolina has, a, like, especially on the coast here, there's a lot of nasty bugs around here, and they are vicious little shits. So let's move forward, because this whole third act could have been prevented if it had not been for one fucking bug. Honestly, yeah. Very good point. Um, funny, I can't help but think of uh, the cable guy. I'm so tired. I'm so very tired, Stephen. I'm so tired, Stephen. I'm just, so very tired, Stephen. <laughs> I'm just, just picturing walk. Robert Mitchum doing that and like, spontaneously so... developing a lisp. With the spider crawling across yeah, his face. Like a fucking spider on his face. Uh, yeah, we, we literally just watched that like last week. Steph had never seen it. Great time. Uh, it holds time. up. It yeah. holds up. Um, but yeah, uh, we uh, cut back to the houseboat, and the daughter is spooked by some boat noises. Um, and this is kind of a chilling scene because of the silence, uh, because we do very clearly hear a boat motor 
and we get to hear over the course of a couple minutes it slowly approaching closer and closer and closer and closer and we see it on the faces of both actresses that they're terrified um and mom lowers the lights and she gets a gun out and everything and she eventually goes out onto the deck of the houseboat and uh her husband, for whatever the fuck reason, waits f- to the last fucking second to announce himself. Like, yeah, just say, Peggy, it's me. <laughs> yeah, he's just like, hey, Pe-. like he says it in like a totally different voice or something. He's like, hey, Peg. <laughs> it's like, God damn it. Damn I almost it, shot you, husband. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just Sam and uh, his cop friend who uh, Kyle, <laughs> he's, I, I get it. He's who you're talking about when it comes to the bug stuff, but we'll yeah. get to that. Um, so we have some coffee on the boat. And uh, Peggy gives the okay to call Charlie. Uh, so the the plan involves using Charlie to guide Katie to Cape Fear yeah. uh, into the trap. Uh, so she gives the okay, and we have this moment where it's like husband and wife are kind of united because he actually like confirms it with her. He's like, "This is this is where we can turn back," and she she actually says, "No, call Charlie." Um, and uh, I don't know why we decided to shoot this sequence this way, but. When Charlie picks up the phone, it's just Telly Savalas like in a wife beater sweating, sweating profusely. Yeah, profusely. <laughs> profusely. <laughs> and what I thought was going to happen was we were going to pan around the room and like Katie was going to be there with yeah. him or something. Oh, I thought he was about to die or something. Yeah. Like, no, yeah. he looks really nervous. Yeah. Because like, he's, he's covered in sweat. He's yeah. drenched. I, it's, well, they didn't have air conditioning. Like most people didn't have air conditioning, I would assume, back then. And it gets hot as... I woke up this morning. It was already 88 degrees at 9 o'clock in the morning and fucking humid. It's miserable out right now. Ugh. And not only that, this whole sequence is shot in Dutch, so it's like mm-hmm. it, something's going on. But yeah. no, nothing. No, um, I think that's anyway, on purpose. Yeah, it, yeah, it's meant to, it's meant to you know plant the seeds of like anxiousness on the part of the yeah. viewer, but to no avail, I guess. But anyway, uh, Katie uh, in the morning is at the bout or the Bowden house, and uh, he gets to watch Charlie receive some sort of case um, from like the maid at the at the home, and uh, Charlie. <laughs> Charlie calls uh, Sam and interrupts a game of ping pong. He has beaten his daughter's ass. <laughs> I think it's like seven zip. <laughs> no mercy. <laughs> there, there's a really funny Louis C.K. bit about playing Monopoly with his daughters. And he's like, a Monopoly loss is like dark. Like it's really dark. And he tells his daughter, he's like, listen, all that money, all that you've worked for right now is mine now. Okay. <laughs> And I'm going to take it, and I'm going to destroy your sister with it. <laughs> like, like playing Monopoly with his daughter. It would have been funny here if he was just like, like Forrest Gumping that shit. Like, she just like, sir, boom! <laughs> just launched it across the table. I mean, we cut away before that, but she does announce the score, and she's like, 7-0. <laughs> it's like, but not for long. It's like, <laughs> Damn, you hold right? your tongue, bitch. <laughs> like... <laughs> I wear the pants in this house. Gregory, you have to show her who's boss. <laughs> but, um, yeah, he interrupts the game of ping pong, and uh, he reports that Katie is nowhere to be seen. Like, he's driving towards Cape Fear, but he hasn't noticed Katie tailing him or anything. So he's like, are you, sure I want, are you sure I should keep coming, or should I double back? It's, Don't fucking go back. Like, back. That's not a good idea. Um, And then we, uh, we cut to Charlie getting some instructions from the locals on how to find uh, the houseboat and uh <laughs> this is where i was thinking that charlie was going to get lost or something because this this haggard old man tells him all them islands look alike just follow this and you can't miss it it's like oh all the islands look alike maybe he'll go to the wrong place and sam will have to deal with 
Katie on his own. Maybe it's to kind of remind you that uh, Gregory pa- uh, uh, Sam's a suit. Like he's not he's not a he's not a cop. Uh, he's just a lawyer, and he's probably always been pretty well off. And he's kind of out of his element a little bit. Although the rest of the film, I mean, arguably the rest of the film kind of speaks to that, like his fight with uh, Katie. But maybe that's what that scene was there for. Like he's not. He's not as manly or uh, as cool as these other guys. See, I thought they did that better in the Scorsese one because I seem to recall, I think he actually, like, make contact with De Niro when he's roughing him up at the at the parade or whatever, and it's pretty obvious that it's like, you hit me, but it wasn't enough. Yeah, it wasn't. <laughs> it's like, and if I decide to hit you back, it's not going to be pretty for you. Yeah. Um, whereas Gregory Peck, the I think what ruins it a little bit is the just the catalyst for the relationship between the two men is that their story begins with him pulling him off of a woman Mm -hmm. so that shows that he has like the gumption to intercede in a a violent situation like that so even if he's not like a rough and tumble tough guy he's still brave and he's still strong-willed whereas Nick Nolte comes across as just like a mess (laughs) like a complete fucking mess in that movie (laughs) Um, but the anyway, descent into madness, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, and on top of that, you have we we didn't talk about much, but uh, Jessica Lange is just maybe even worse than him. Like she, she is a, she is teetering on like just complete mental breakdown. She's fantastic. I like her as an actress. She has a very um, she's very biting in the way that she talks to him in that movie and she kind of like emasculates him in the film a oh few she, times. she's kicking him in the nuts verbally from end to end in that movie yeah uh, she strips him down constantly and she knows it like she knows his his weak his buttons yeah, yeah yeah she knows how to push him but um, then you factor in Juliette lewis being like kind of like courted by by katie and and like convinced to turn her back on her family and it just adds all these layers oh, of like yeah. in a it, the whole family unit is just imploding, kind of. Oh no, it's brilliant! Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty good. Um, good movie. You should watch it. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Charlie uh, takes off by boat, and Katie's watching, and uh, he gets there without a hitch. He drops off the case. I don't even think anything's in it. It's just a prop. It's oh no, just... no, it's a record player. I've, I've, oh, that's what okay. he was grabbing. He was a record player in records. Okay, um, that's a weird thing to not bring with you like why would you <laughs> they went in, a, in a, like a rush and I, the the daughter's bored obviously so I'm like yeah just grab a record player or something that would be an easy thing to do yeah um so he drops off the case with the Bowdoin ladies and sam remains hidden here just in case katie is watching and uh it is now nighttime and we're at the climax of the film and uh nancy puts on some music she puts on a record as uh, we see sam and his cop buddy uh, hiding below the house, so we have a house and a houseboat say, like, it's next to each other. Very important that we establish where everybody is because even I was confused at first until I was like, okay, I see what's happening now. So for some reason, I mean, it makes sense to us, but we've got mom on the houseboat doing dishes, and she's very clearly seen in the in the window. Which I also read on IMDb that this is one of the first shots where uh, binocular vision was actually accurate. This is like actually like what you would see looking through the binocular. Um, and then Nancy, they're both very visible. Um, she's just kind of like playing with the ping pong paddle and listening to records while you've got um, the deputy. I just call him the deputy. He's under the dock. And then is Sam underneath the house? 
I believe he's under the house. He's under the, the house. The house has like some struts. Like think stilt house, Kyle. <laughs> if you don't mind, I'd like to walk us through this scene because I, I love this sequence here where um, Katie is, he's got his binoculars and he's he sees the mom, he sees Peggy, and then he's just kind of thinking and he looks over and he sees Nancy and that's who he's got his eye on. You can kind of tell. But then he goes back over to Peggy and he's just kind of staring at her. And I thought this was really cool. So he... He takes off his hat, and he takes off his shirt, and he's right by the riverbed, like he's just right there. And I don't think he takes off his shoes, but he just, it's really interesting, he just kind of slinks into the into the water and starts swimming over there. It's, it's really nice, it's kind of like telling you, like, this man is a predator, and he's hunting like a predator right now. And well, I, I thought it was a really cool scene. There's a lot of mention of him uh, being an animal. Yeah. Like, explicitly, that that's verbatim what they call him, an animal. Yeah. Where, in fact, I think the chief or Charlie tells Sam at one point, like, you're dealing with an animal. You need to fight him like an animal. Mm-hmm. In other words, you need to take off your fucking suit and get your hands dirty because that's what he's going to do. Um, but, yeah, I, I liken this to him doing, like, an alligator impression. And yeah. it's fitting being as he sounds like he's from, like, the South and, you know, Florida, gators yeah. and whatnot. And make, it makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, he he slides into the water, and it's very animalistic and predatory, like you said. I just it's it's such a deliberate it's a deliberate uh, thing for the director to have the actor do that. I just thought was real. It, it was really nice touch. Yeah, uh, it's it's strange, but it somehow works because mm-hmm. until the end of this film, he's shirtless. He's just wearing pants, and he's usually wet. And it it comes across as like he's subhuman for the finale of the film. Yeah, it also adds more tension to those scenes where you think you know where it's like where it's supposed to be going, uh, as far as the story is concerned. So you have a man who's already like sweaty and wet, shirtless. It just it makes him grimier to me. Well, and on top of that, it's like you have like an extra layer where it's like he's he's very comfortable. Where you know that's not a that's not a normal circumstance for somebody to appear in and yet yeah. he co- seems completely unfazed by it totally fine it's like it's like nope this is this is normal for me <laughs> um but yeah uh he loses his shirt and he slips into the water and uh nancy makes a noise in the house which makes her dad jump um and what happens here is uh katie wades through the water and he he comes to like a tree and i think there's like a a wire of some sort like mm-hmm. maybe the the houseboat is shackled to the tree or something, but he's examining this wire, and uh, wouldn't you know it, Kyle? Uh, there's <laughs> another there's another little noise disturbance. So this is what Kyle was alluding to when he was talking about insects. And uh, you want to tell the folks at home what you meant by that? Yeah, this poor this poor deputy is underneath this dock, and he just hear a he just slaps his face because there's a bug. These things bite so hard. Like we joke that Steph and I run down our driveway. That like you get you'll get a concussion because they'll bite your head and you they they fucking hurt and you smack them but we end up like you're just you'll see me running down the driveway pop 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 and they fucking suck so I, that's what I'm guessing this guy's getting bit by I'm like absolutely sorry you never had a chance sir uh, <laughs> you were gonna die tonight um, he slaps this he slaps his face and Max becomes wise that there's a uh, another man underneath there and wouldn't you know it he gets the drop on him and he. Yeah. He chokes the shit out of him, and he drowns him. Like he's like choking and drowning him at the same time. What's he say to him? He's like, I didn't catch it exactly, but he said like, 
you're like, you're gonna die with like a bruise with not a bruise on you yeah like not, not a, a mark on you yeah i i didn't catch the last part of it it's kind of like i'm tired of these motherfucking snakes on this motherfucking <laughs> plane there's actually more to that line but i wasn't able to hear it because the crowd erupted and parroted it the first fucking time anyone in that room heard it mm. but um yeah he says something along the lines of like you're you're gonna die without a mark on you like yeah you got in over your head basically um, but yeah, he he gives this this poor fellow a rear naked choke in the water, <laughs> and uh, he's doing an awful he, job, by the way. Even I know how to do a chokehold, and I'm like, this doesn't even look right. <laughs> Here, <laughs> um, but yeah, this this cop guy, uh, this red shirt, he's he's done. Uh, well, black and white, no red shirts, but you you get the picture. Um, so Katie unmoors the the houseboat, and uh, Sam starts shouting for his cop buddy, who he discovers dead in the water. And uh, we get a really awesome, like, close-up of a doorknob slowly turning as uh, Katie enters the houseboat, and uh, it's completely silent. We just hear, like, ambient sounds of just, like, a boat on the water. And uh, Katie enters, and there's all sorts of shadows cast all over the place. Uh, He's shot in Dutch when he steps into the, like, the living room area of the houseboat. And uh, meanwhile, Sam is telling Nancy to call the police, and we get this moment that's kind of neat where she runs to get the phone and whatnot, and camera doesn't move. She runs away from the camera into the back of the room, and before she starts dialing, though, she runs back to the door and, like, shuts it and locks it. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> smart girl. It uh, doesn't do you any good, but smart girl. Um, and then we get uh, Katie and Peggy uh, face-to-face. Um, and this is one of the more intense sequences in the whole movie. Yeah. So we've got we've got moving parts here. So the boat is moving. He's unmoored the boat. The boat is moving, um, and he's having a conversation with her. However, the boat's moving, but it kind of runs aground. It kind of stops. And Gregory Peck takes this as an opportunity to swim over to it because now he's kind of like hopeless. He's like, "What the fuck? Now, now she's going. I'm not going to catch up in time." But this gives him an opportunity. And this sequence, I have written down in my notes, that's not consent. And uh, he basically katie is face to face with her he's like listen this is gonna happen and you're gonna consent to it and she's like absolutely not he's like well put it this way you're gonna consent to it or i'm gonna go after your daughter basically and yeah and she's like but yeah but that's not consent he's like well maybe you just had it in your head that that's what the 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 situation was going to be so there's nothing you can really do about it like he's putting her in this situation um and then they kind of he like forces her into the other room or whatever, and Gregory Peck makes or uh, Sam makes it onto the boat, and he is kind of like Batman. Uh, he's kind of like Batman earlier in here, where he just kind of disappears. Yeah, I, I want to say the uh, I looked up some information about the scene in particular. I guess it was not blocked, so this was invented on the fly. The way the, the physicality of it, mm. um, and it's remarkable. Uh, so Robert Mitchum does this move where she's trying to like plead with him and whatnot, and she's talking about the law, and he's like, he's like, bitch, please, like your your <laughs> man's a lawyer, like he yeah. he knows the laws as well as I do. But when he does it, he just picks up an egg from the counter and pops it in front of her face. I thought it was a lemon because she was slicing it's an lemons. Egg. Oh, it's, it's an egg, and he just like pops it in front of her face, and it it 
literally adds punch to to that line delivery it's cl- but then he starts smearing the egg on her chest and mm-hmm. in 1962 it's like whoa that's yeah. getting pretty close to her boobers yeah um, i was thinking that same thing. i'm like are they gonna i'm like i don't remember when we first first started doing nudity in a film but i'm like if they go for it here i'm like hats off like this should not have been a financial failure like this should have been I mean, regarded, Psycho something. was 1960, mm-hmm. and that was very racy for the time. And this <sighs> is equally racy. Um, I mean, it doesn't have a woman in the shower, but I mean, yeah, he's like running his hands all over her chest with egg smeared on her, and she's like moaning the whole time. Yeah, and it gets really intense. And I guess this whole sequence was just uh, invented by the actors on the fly, so the camera just kind of followed them. And uh, at one point, he starts slapping her. And it's pretty savage. And I guess uh, the way the actress herself described it was she thought it was an excellent scene. However, the way the scene concluded on the set was um, like production staff like jumped into the frame and separated them. Oh, really? Because it was getting too hot in there. Um, But I thought that was really like knowing that makes the scene even better. Um, But just inventing that egg prop thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that worked for me. I was like, that was... That was brilliant. Better um, than Leo rubbing or wiping blood on that poor woman's face in Django. Uh, I, st- I still oh, think man. that's horseshit. Yeah, that that's that's uh that's not cool. No, <laughs> absolutely not. Like, I mean, it ended up being a good scene, but that's uh, that's nasty. And she was that, okay with it, like afterwards. I think that's I think that's Leo a person's allegedly blood. Was, yeah, I'm like he was kind of apologetic, from what I understand. He was kind of like, listen, I was just going with the scene, and she was just like. Uh huh. Like most powerful man in Hollywood right now. Okay. Yeah. Uh, honestly. Seriously. Um, fuck that. But yeah, Katie. Uh, he Batman's out of there. He Commissioner Gordon's uh, Sam, and uh, Sam enters the houseboat with his revolver in tow, and uh, he finds Peggy on the ground moaning, and uh, she tells him that Katie is actually gunning for Nancy. So she's like, "I'm fine. Get the fuck out of here. Like we got <laughs> we we have a daughter together, and you got to do something about it." Um, so we cut to Nancy at the house on the shore, and uh, the Dutch angles are going crazy here, uh, Dutch for all. And uh, Katie smacks, he like smashes a, a hole in the, the glass window of the door and just un- casually undoes the lock, mm-hmm. so shit. <laughs> um, but uh, he stalks her from across the ping pong table that she was playing on earlier, and uh, he corners her. And this is actually a callback to his story about his wife, um, so that he... I mentioned during that story that his wife took a fireplace poker to him, like tried to whack him with it. And uh, Nancy does the same thing. Uh, She grabs a fireplace poker and like brandishes it against him. And they just kind of stare at each other for a second. She's in tears and he just very casually takes it away from her. She's not, she doesn't even try to swing at her or anything. So she's just emotionally broken down to the point she doesn't have it in her. Um, but fortunately, Sam swims up as he's uh, carrying her out of the house into the like the wooded area nearby on the shore. And uh, Sam, this this was weird, Kyle, because this is not a bad scene. It just happens too quick. There needed to be buildup. There needed to be the classic hostage situation, you know, where the yeah. two men have another face to face. There's maybe some exchange of dialogue, but no, like he's he's got Nancy. He's like, you be quiet, blah blah blah. I'm like, I'm he's walking her out into the woods. And then Sam just like crawls out of the water and runs up to him and they just start fighting. Yeah. <laughs> There's no words exchanged. She explodes out of the water and they start fighting. 
It's we'll see. like, whoa, we're at the end of the movie. Okay. <laughs> I was waiting for Deus Ex Telly to show up this whole time. Oh, that would be great. Like, like he Han Solo's his way onto the scene. Yeah. <laughs> it just I shows up in a speedboat. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought was going to happen. Um, but it doesn't. There's quite a bit of scuffling here. Um, they scuffle. And then we get back into the water, basically. And, um, and Max is choking out Sam. And he thinks that he's got him killed, basically. He, like, kind of drowns him in the water. But you see this underwater shot of Sam picking up a rock and just, boom, coming out of the water and hitting him. Also... Like doing it out of the water like that, I really have to have quite a bit of force behind it. Like, is that's that's hard to do out of the water. Well, he 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 catches him pretty good with it. Um, it's it's a good impact. It's better than most of the punches thrown earlier. Although they definitely employed some stunt people for the initial outburst of the fight because uh, Sam runs up to him and they start grappling and whatnot, and uh, Max goes for the choke and whatnot. And Sam does this move where it's straight out of like Adam West Batman, where he mm. kicks his legs up and he pushes, he like donkey kicks a tree to push mm. them both onto the ground. It's like, oh, that's that's not Gregory Peck. <laughs> it's, like, but it's great. But which, anyway, yeah. which oh, lethal weapon is it where Mel Gibson gets a full on like juggernaut headbutt into it, where he like comes up like Jaws, just boom. Um. I don't know about an upward headbutt, but he he uncorks a couple on Jet Li, um, like like crane like cranium not, shots. I'm not talking about cranium. I'm talking like like a fucking shark coming out of the water, just bam. So, so f- folks at home that can't see this, Kyle is doing a shoryuken or a tiger yes. uppercut with his head. With his, oh, no, no. <laughs> it's not with his head. It's his entire body, and I do yes. remember. And it is with Mel Gibson with a mullet. So. It would I probably be three or two. I think it's two. I, I want to say it's. It might have been three. I don't know. I three, might have to. Three has the the roundhouse kick. But is that where, the, where Raj is trying to do the roundhouse kick? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that poor water cooler. I love his quick neck pop. Just the like. Oh yeah, I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get this. <laughs> oh my god, his hip flexors do not function that way. <laughs> he can't even get his leg above like his. Can't knee. even get his leg up. Yeah, it's pretty great. Yeah, it's pretty great, but yeah, anyway, these two scuffle. these two grown men they have a tussle in the woods here, and uh, so th- long story short, they they fight, and uh, Katie eventually gets a wooden club with like a nail in it. That yeah. that is the most primitive of primitive weapons, <laughs> a kind of fitting for an animal. Um, yeah, and uh, he misses uh, Sam. He like puts a hole in a tree instead, um, and eventually Sam d- makes a dive for the revolver he dropped earlier, and uh, he flips onto his back. Uh, he does a James Bond. Um, he flips onto his back and he shoots him square in the torso with it. And I don't know if you noticed this. I, I don't know how you couldn't, but um, there is some crazy censorship shit going on here um, because Katie gets shot somewhere in the gut and he here falls onto his it. back. And there's some sort of mat placed over the screen in the form of what looks to be bushes that are hand painted onto the frame. And they're kind of fidgeting around because it's not a perfect mat. But well, there's just this black mass that looks like somebody drew some bushes onto the screen. Well, apparently this, I mean, 
overseas, I think in uh, the British version of this was cut to like just completely cut up and edited. They didn't even want anything kind of mentioning sexual assault, so all that was edited out heavily. And I well, think you for can't a, even have a movie that way. <laughs> yeah, but that's the thing. So I think in order for them to have a release of this, is like you either have to cut out the violence or you have to cut out the subject matter. And I like this the the actual like dialogue is more important to the film than any kind of like like this kind of violence like it, it doesn't it's doesn't really matter at this point um so yeah that was probably them like we have to do something like all right fine take the fucking gunshot out or something i think that's exactly what happened uh because this this could not have been intentional it looks terrible um but i'm guessing it was strategically placed bushes to cover what was probably makeup to simulate a gun wound like mm-hmm. a gunshot wound um, so Katie's on his back. He's still alive. He's still talking. Um, he does not die in this film. Spoiler alert. Um, but Sam spits some hot fire. <laughs> so he's brandishing the pistol at him at this wounded man on the ground. He says, bang your head against the wall. Count all the days, months, and years until the day you rot. Mm-hmm. So he's basically saying, like, motherfucker, your punishment isn't for me to kill you on the spot. It's to me- It's for me to put you back where I put you before and make you deal with it again this time forever forever <laughs> forever yeah and he's absolutely right he's like this can give you the easy way out to die he's like absolutely not you'd probably like that he's like no you're going back into a cage and that's where you belong and he's absolutely right this man deserves this man belongs behind bars well and it's it's fitting like within the confines of the story too because mm-hmm. it's exactly what katie said he wanted for him so yeah. like i don't, I don't want to kill you outright i want to just take little cuts at you until you until I drive you nuts and you want that to be the end for you. You know, I appreciate how movies ended back in the day because we get this and it wraps up and then we just see the family kind of look like they've gone through an ordeal on a boat just headed back and credits. It's just like, nope, we just end the movie. Yeah. Um, the final shot is them on a, like, in blankets. Uh, this is almost a Joel Silver ending. This is almost a Lethal Weapon ending mm. where the, the classic Lethal Weapon slash Joel Silver ending is... Uh, there's like a, a crisis situation, and that's like the end of Die Hard, where every, everybody has crisis blankets wrapped around mm-hmm. them. And then the camera pulls back, and it's like that's it's cool. like Riggs being cradled by Murtaugh, and the camera pulls out of the shipyard, and we get a pop song. <laughs> I can't wait to watch that movie again because I love that fight scene between him and the South African. South African, um, but yeah, our closing shots are everybody wearing uh, crisis blankets, and uh, they get dr- driven out of the Cape via boat, and the credits play over a serene daytime shot of a boat on the water. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, uh, that was Cape Fear 1962. Fantastic. I Yeah, I, I think I grew to appreciate it more as we talked about it. It's, it, like, it's really ahead of its time, I think. 1962, this was a very... This is a racy film, and I think because of that, it holds up very well with like our standards of what a movie should be. Um, and it's hard, like I said, like I could barely pay attention to a couple of films that I screened for this month. Um, this one, I couldn't. I'm like, I was in it, like hardcore in it, like, and I knew the story too. But I think maybe that also helped because I'm like, I want to see how it was done originally, and that might have helped me keep my attention, keep my uh, help keep my attention. But even so, it's still was very a very engaging film yeah like, like i said i have the softest of soft spots for this particular subgenre of film um i i love like man against man stories uh, it's it i don't know there's something like just captivating about because it it's, it's very relatable like mm. it's like what what if 
what if I was driven to that point where it's like, you know, we all have like casual grudges or we just have people that rub us the wrong way. But like, what would it be like to actually get to a point where it's like, it's actually affecting your daily life to the point where like my seething hatred towards this person is kind of causing me to neglect other aspects of life. You need an alibi, leave no trace and make sure that the murder weapon can never be uh, traced back to you. Well, that's the thing. That that's what makes these stories compelling to me. Is you, usually the good ones show you the the path that each character has to walk to get to that point, mm-hmm. where it, you know, there's there's usually some sort of catalyst to to cause them to take things further and whatnot. But um, when you get that final outburst, usually it's like, yeah, like we've been waiting an hour and a half for this. Like, fuck yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so how would you rank the movies that you got to watch this month as far as black and white goes? Um, hmm. I would put this neck and neck with Bride, Bride of Frankenstein. Interesting. Captain, Captain Blood I did enjoy, but the hard part for me is that I I love the adventures of Robin Hood, mm. and everything that Errol Flynn did in Captain Blood, I think better. he did better in, in Robin Hood. Well, I can't wait so, to watch that. I'm super excited to watch that so one. So yeah, for, for my particular standards, it's like Captain Blood was fun and whatnot, but I don't think it's my favorite. Um, by comparison, I'm, anyway. I'm gonna wait until we we actually are gonna do an episode on it. I'm assuming eventually we're gonna have to do an episode on the Adventures of Robin Hood. I would guess so. I'll wait till we yeah. get to like a good swashbuckling month to actually watch it. Yeah, and uh, Clerks. I mean, maybe Clerks is at the bottom of that list, but at the same time, like Clerks, I'm so glad I watched it because it needed to happen eventually, mm-hmm. and. I don't know. Like Kevin, Kevin Smith may may not be the most talented of filmmakers, but I'm really happy we have him. Yeah, like glad I, he exists, I appreciate yeah. his work, and I appreciate like just him being in the film world in the capacity that he is. Gotcha. Well, so the picks were pretty good this month. Yeah, overall it was a very solid month. Um, Excellent. I don't think Excellent. there were any outright losers or anything. It's been, no, I, I chose not to do those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Kyle. Um, Kyle screened several films that did not make the cut, um, mm-hmm. and I'm thankful that he, you know, decided to make that decision. Where it's like, you know, mm, I, w- <laughs> I don't I, think that's what we're going to be doing next week. The, the other films that I screened for this were good films. Don't get me wrong; like they they have something to offer. It just I didn't think that we could get a good conversation out of it. And I thought that I knew the subject matter of this was going to be probably good enough for a conversation. That's fair, um, but but yeah, I guess that draws a. Uh, catching up on cinema's uh, catching up on black and white event to a close um which brings us to august yeah uh, which is mine yeah. <laughs> again you're <laughs> i'm not in here with you you're in here <laughs> with me um so august uh, i guess it's tradition at this point is anime august mm-hmm. um which leaves the decision making process to me um, it can always it could it can always make its way into action august if it has action. to is is that your like not so subtle way of saying like for the love of God I'm not in the mood for this shit? <laughs> it really depends on your anime choices this this time. Well, Princess you, Mononoke you not was, so subtly hinted at the fact that you were looking for gore. Princess Mononoke was very tedious for me. Okay, so we're not looking for cerebral animation. We're looking for blood and guts, stupid I need shit, schlock. <laughs> I need fun. Yes. Okay, we're going for schlock. We're going for fun. I've got nothing but that on the <laughs> shelf, <laughs> so um, I think that should be a problem. So next four weeks, it's going to be me, and uh, I'm going to be picking some animes for us all to watch. Um, 
But that being said, um, if you want to check out our other programming, um, our other episodes and whatnot, uh, we do have a website. Uh, it is catchinguponcinema.com. Uh, you can find all of our episodes listed there. Um, and we also have s- the social medias in the form of an Instagram, at catchinguponcinema, as well as a Twitter account, at catchingcinema. Uh, so feel free to hit me up at either one of those accounts if uh, you want to maybe make a suggestion on future programming choices or whatnot. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time.